0: We are assembled here today to pay final respects to our honored dead. And yet it should be noted that in the midst of our sorrow, this death takes place in the shadow of new life, the sunrise of a new world, a world that our beloved comrade gave his life to protect and nourish. He did not feel this sacrifice of vain or empty one, and we will not debate his profound wisdom at these proceedings. Of my friend, I can only say this. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most
1: human. Otters.
2: Good morning, everyone. And no, you're not tuned into the wrong channel. Welcome to the other side of midnight for this Saturday night, Sunday morning, January 13th, 2024. Tonight is going to be a very special show, a memorial show, because even now, as I'm talking to you over landlines and satellites and terrestrial radio and an entire wired network around the world to the hundreds of countries that we're in. Out in space, beyond the moon, there is a spacecraft called Centaur, actually an upper stage. And in that stage, there are 240 souls, if one can imagine, in the form of DNA and the cremated ashes of the remains of 240 once living people on planet earth, who are heading into an eternal orbit of the solar system, of the sun. And among those people are a sterling cast of characters that we have known and loved so well for so many years and decades. Most of the bridge crew of the USS Enterprise, Nichelle Nichols, Uhuru, um uh DeForest Kelly Bones James Doohan Scotty are en route tonight forever away from earth on their final enterprise mission and I say that with all due respect because as you'll see when we get into into our news items uh, uh in a couple of minutes space.com over a year ago called this this uh extraordinary adventure a combination of collaboration between nasa and a firm called astrobiotic or astrobotic i'm sorry and the united launch alliance which is a fusion of two major aerospace companies lockheed martin and the boeing corporation who launched this mission on monday morning in the wee hours of monday morning just uh kind of toward the end of our our Sunday night, Monday morning show on a first-time rocket put together by Boeing and Lockheed, a rocket called Vulcan, a Vulcan rocket launching the final Enterprise mission of most of the bridge crew of the USS Enterprise. While simultaneously on the spacecraft that that rocket launched into space, and headed toward the moon, in the wee hours of that Monday morning, there are other major figures in the panoply of Star Trek, uh, you know, first-rate characters. For instance, the great bird of the galaxy himself, Gene Roddenberry, his ashes are being carried by the Peregrine Lander, which was initially intended to land on the moon on February 23rd and is not going to be able to make it now. And we'll go through the details of all that in the uh, next three hours. In addition, the ashes of his wife, Majel, Nurse Chapel, Majel Barrett, uh, Majel Roddenberry when they finally got married. Uh, she is accompanying him on this final mission. This one intended originally for the lunar surface. And in fact, now it may be uh, intended for someplace far beyond. And last but not least, and we'll go through some of the other notables that we now have identified that are on this uh, combined mission. Uh, my dear friend, Arthur C. Clarke. Um, a special envoy was sent, it turns out, by the Celestis uh, company, which is the firm in Houston, Texas, which has been carrying out since 1994 these space memorials. And on the, their particular assignment, they went to Sri Lanka specifically to find the DNA of Arthur, and they found some of his hair, brought it back, prepared it for insertion into one of these little special capsules. And he and Jean and Majel and several others were destined initially in the plan to spend the rest of the lifetime of the solar system sitting on the moon atop a four-legged lander called Peregrine. And why is that important? Because Peregrine is another name for a special species of falcon, a blue falcon. And of course in the Egyptian Mythos and traditions, the falcon, the peregrine, is Horus, the god of the rising sun and resurrection. We're going to spend the next three hours kind of doing a forensic analysis of the intent of this combined Horus and Enterprise mission, what has turned out differently, what some of the potential hidden agendas behind this mission which has been like 16 years it turns out in the planning and where it's all going to come down and come out and come to all the rest of us in the form of a revelation uh with us tonight um are some of our very very well-known crew members here at the enterprise mission uh, Georgia Lambert is with us. She's our resident metaphysician. Andrew Curry is with us. He is a uh, Hollywood artist, works on feature films, works on commercials, has worked on uh, Super Bowl extravaganzas. We've got Holger Eisenberg, who's with us, who is uh, a expert in um, uh, image processing. Uh, he lives in Silicon Valley. He has a wide range of engineering interests in the space program and has been doing yeoman service in trying to interpret the periodic uh, uh, press releases that Astrobotic has been issuing following Monday morning's launch. And then a few hours later, the discovery that something had gone radically wrong with the propulsion system of the uh, Peregrine spacecraft and that it would not be able to land on the moon after all. And initially the assessment was, there was a unplanned leak in the fuel system. They pinned it down to potentially a leak in the oxidizer tank. And of course, because you're in space and there's no atmosphere, if you're gonna get a rocket to ignite, you've gotta have a fuel and you have to have oxygen from which the fuel is burned. Well, there apparently is a leak that was somehow triggered by the separation of the spacecraft from the upper stage Centaur, which occurred uh, about a half hour after the second burn of the Centaur rocket, leaving Earth and heading the Peregrine spacecraft in this double looping trajectory around the moon. And as we speak tonight, the spacecraft is literally turning around like a stone thrown into the air. It did not have what we call escape velocity, meaning the Centaur rocket deliberately did not fire it on a trajectory whereby if it didn't reach the moon, it would uh, go on forever into an orbit around the sun, a so-called heliocentric orbit. But instead, and we were discussing this before airtime, its intended trajectory was a loop around the point in space where the moon will be in another week, and then they fall back around the Earth another loop up toward the moon. And by that time, the moon will have arrived at a rendezvous. And the plan was to place it into a extended lunar orbit and then over ensuing weeks uh, to lower that orbit in stages. Finally, uh, doing an automatic computer-controlled descent on the 23rd of February, which, by the way, is one night before a magician named David Copperfield has advertised widely that he is going to make the entire moon disappear. If that were not enough, there are these hidden swirling memes around the missions themselves. Three separate capsules on these two spacecraft containing in total something like 300 or maybe 300 uh, DNA samples and or ashes of both the deceased and the living on their one-way journey into space or as the original plan intended for a soft landing and then eternal rest upon the moon. Well, one half of that mission is in great peril because the latest trajectory analysis indicates that as the Peregrine spacecraft, this unmanned robot, which is about the size of a large washing machine with four landing legs and lots of mylar and carrying 20 um, payloads, five experiments from NASA and uh, 15 separate payloads of uh, various types from memorializations, artwork, to actual engraved signatures Uh, on little nickel sheets, which will last in the vacuum forever, on which are inscribed names and messages from participants from all over the world. Something like, last number I saw was 85,000 people had signed up. So our mutual friend, Nova Spivak, who developed this technology and has been on this program several times discussing it on other missions, could leave messages and their memorialization on the moon along with the ashes and the DNA. Well, um, I'll tell you what, before we get into all of that, because it's a very tangled and frankly rather confusing picture tonight, we do not know whether there's enough fuel in the peregrine tanks, enough oxidizer To pressurize the engines so that they can literally at the uh, high point, the apogee again tonight at the lunar distance, whether they can turn on the engines and conduct what is called a TCM, a trans maneuver, because what they have to do if the spacecraft is not going to uh, in five days come back to Earth, smash into the Earth's atmosphere and bury itself under the Pacific, somewhere northeast of Australia. They need to somehow turn those engines on, burn for a few minutes, maybe even less, and raise the perigee, the whip around distance, when the spacecraft falls back that quarter million miles to Earth um, by January 19th, which will be Tuesday. And if they don't, manage to light those engines and burn for a few minutes the trajectory currently assessed by nasa's deep space tracking network is that the spacecraft will enter the atmosphere uh, northwest of australia and all the payloads will burn up in a brilliant artificial meteor including genes and majel's remains and arthur's dna which by the way was extracted from a hair sample that they brought back the United States uh, to Celestis there in Houston from his home in Sri Lanka. They sent someone all the way to Sri Lanka to make sure that Arthur was on this enterprise mission. So I'm kind of betting that between the more optimistic prognostications of the onboard pressurization and fuel and the unwillingness For the mission planners and those engineers who are working the consoles 24 7 now they are willing to allow this mission to die an ignominious fate but i think that if they have any technological means available meaning simply pressurization in those tanks and enough fuel to do the burn they can raise the perigee so that the spacecraft does not intersect the earth or enter the atmosphere but instead whips around heading back toward the moon and then into interplanetary space to forever circle the sun with the onboard memorial of Jean and Majel and Arthur and about 65 other people so that's our tableau for tonight that's our discussion in terms of its meaning cuz there are so many layered mythological and historical meanings far beyond the encapsulation I have just presented that is going to take us about three hours to go through all of the different things that are occurring simultaneously on this specific mission because as you're going to hear some of our panelists tonight some of our crew members like Andrew and I firmly believe that this mission in fact has a dual or even a quadruple meaning, which includes, by the way, the rather remarkable objections by the Navajo people at the last minute to the concept of landing human remains on the moon at all. We'll get into all of that, but let me do a quick summary of some news. If you go to theothersideofmidnight.com and you click on the other side of midnight banner, which says very brightly and spectacularly Uh, which was specifically written for tonight's show, the enterprise around NASA's secret Horus mission to the moon. And you click on that, that will take you to the guest page. And under the guest page for this Saturday night, January 13th, you will see fast links to items. Click on my name. That will take you to the section of the page we call Radio with Pictures, item number one. The reason all this is important is that something has to change in the current human condition. Otherwise, the prognostication for the human race tonight is not very optimistic. What do I mean by that? Well, the war in the Mideast between Israel and Hamas and really Israel and Iran has been widened in the last two days because the U.S. military and 14 other nations did a combined aerial strike bombarding something like 60 separate targets in the northwestern part of Yemen, attacking the Houthi rebels, who are a split-off faction of uh, uh, Shia, I believe. And they have been at war with the government of Yemen for, for several years now. And they are taking the side of Hamas in the war between hamas in gaza and israel and in so doing they have been attacking an innocent set of third parties which is the economic transport of global supplies through the red sea and ultimately the suez canal in the last week alone something like 27 attacks on neutral shipping that have nothing to do with israel or hamas or the united states or anybody else basically part of the global supply chain which keeps civilization all over this planet alive and well has been attacked by the Houthi rebels and so two days ago the uh, united states in concert with these 14 other nations launched a combined attack on military bases radars missile missile sites cruise missile sites all the paraphernalia the rebels have been using to attack again completely innocent civilian cargo ships and oil tankers folks totally uninvolved in the nightmare going on in the middle east in other words the Houthi rebels have been holding international shipping hostage in an effort to pressure israel to basically cease attacking Hamas, a tangled web indeed. The problem is, given the tinderbox that is the Middle East with other Iranian uh, surrogates like Hezbollah in Lebanon, all it will take is one mistime match and that entire region could go up in flames. And in that process, given the fact that there are participants on all sides who have nuclear weapons and some advisors to the Israeli government, some ministers of Prime Minister Netanyahu have actually openly advocated using nuclear weapons to clear the Gaza terrain, to level it like a parking lot. Such insane over-the-top remarks are what can inadvertently trigger not just a local conflagration, but something which could quickly, inevitably, escalate into something that none of us tonight would even dare to contemplate. So what is the alternative? I believe, and I believe most of the participants on this panel believe, that the only change that can be happening on Earth is if human beings are suddenly confronted face to face with a much larger, much deeper, much more profound and meaningful reality than the stupid things going on tonight on planet Earth. That means reconnecting in our model with our ancient selves, reconnecting with the fact that on the moon, the place where the peregrine slash mission was destined to land. It's not a desolate, crater-strewn, and radiation-saturated landscape, but in fact, it was once the home of an avidly vibrant and incredibly sophisticated technological civilization in many different stages, ranging from tens of millions of years ago to perhaps as recently as 30 thousand years and as we go through the morning we will tabulate some of the evidence that we have discussed and laid out on previous shows on the other side of midnight which document what to some may sound like absolute raving assertions and i kid you not they are not just assertions they are backed up with crisp pristine checkable hard physical evidence like our discovery and confirmation that in fact there was constructed at a crater on the moon in oceanus Procellarum, which by the way is now the same location that the um, uh, peregrine spacecraft was intended to land not the same site but the same you know area within several hundred miles there is at the apollo 12 landing site where nasa sent Not just one, but two separate missions, twice redundantly, to sand in the same location. Surveyor 3 and Apollo 12. There is tonight sitting on the rim of that stadium-sized, ancient, incredibly eroded crater, which frankly looks like the submerged and damaged foundations of an ancient, ancient structure underneath the regolith underneath the lunar soil there is an incredible lunar equivalent of stonehenge and we have done all kinds of tests compared multiple photographs done computer simulations greg aarons did incredible service in finding key alignments calibrate to the last time this structure was created as part of another potential memorial to souls who have passed on was about 30,000 years ago. Now, into this mix, let's move to item number two. We have three major wars going on tonight. The one in Ukraine, the one in Gaza, and the new front opened up with our U.S. strikes on behalf of the 14-nation consortium in uh, uh, Yemen uh, last night and the night before. At that precise moment, as all of this incredibly dangerous and precipitous military activity is going on, the United States Secretary of Defense disappeared at the beginning of last week, two weeks ago, for three whole days. And no one, including the President of the United States, knew where he had gone. We will discuss the real potential reason for this bizarreness, the underlying causes, and how it might in fact be connected to this ongoing celestial drama that we are discussing with great detail tonight there does appear to be a verifiable connection. Item number three. This is the story, the actual story, uh, on Axios of the United Launch Alliance Vulcan Centaur rocket lifting from the launch pad, pad 41, there at uh, Cape Canaveral on Monday morning at 2.18 a.m. Eastern Time. Number four is a detailed background on this Star Trek Memorial Flight on space.com, which says in this iteration that they added two more names to its enterprise mission. Interesting how that name keeps getting around. Number five, one of the mysteries which may factor into this ongoing cascading series of Russian dolls or Chinese puzzle boxes, when you open one, there's another mystery inside, is in item number five. Because the initial Peregrine landing site was something like a thousand miles northeast of where the eventual intended target of the Peregrine mission on 23rd February was supposed to land. The initial site, a thousand miles northeast, was nowhere near where they were planning to land when they lifted off on Monday morning. But curiously, remarkably, intriguingly, and maybe critically, the place where they were going to land the Peregrine mission, with Gene's remains and Majel's and Arthur's, among others, was a place on the moon north of of Mare Serenitatis Mortis, or the Lake of the Dead. We will discuss more when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return.
3: Space,
0: the final frontier.
2: Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, on uh, January 13th, 2024. Well, 2024 has gotten off to a bang, but not exactly the kind of bang that I expected from this really remarkable mission. And what I'd like to do now is to start with our uh, colleague and friend and confidant and uh, valued member of the Enterprise crew here at the Enterprise mission, Georgia Lambert, because... As God would have it, when you need something, it seems to be available. And to analyze a hidden NASA mission called Peregrine, which basically means a falcon, a specific breed of falcon, we have none other than Georgia Lambert's expertise to talk about falconry because one of her many talents and hobbies and professions in addition to being a metaphysician and an exquisite artist, she's also a falconer. So without further ado, Georgia, join the party.
5: Good evening. <laughs> Good evening. Yes, another another weird slice of my life here. Good um, <laughs> Well, with all the, the math and the space science that's going to unfold tonight, uh, we can start with... Uh, a a National Geographic moment here, and I have three points to make about why the name Peregrine might be symbolic and ritualistic and relevant. Ah. The first uh, point must be understood by understanding the sight of a falcon. You know, falcons are raptors.
2: When you say sight, sa- you, you mean their vision?
5: Yeah, okay. yeah, their okay. vision. Uh, the, the Falcons, of course, are, are raptors, birds of prey, along with hawks. Eagles are, are, are in the hawk category. Vultures and owls. It's interesting that all raptors have eyes that are in some ways similar to ours in that there's a colored iris with a black pupil that contracts and expands according to light. If you look at pictures of hawk owls, you'll see a yellow or orange iris uh, with a black pupil. Falcons are different. Falcons' eyes are all black, like a gray alien's. Oh, my. And Yeah. They have a completely different look. I mean, if you think the look of uh, an eagle is intense, ratchet it up when you look at a falcon. A falcon's sight is so good that they could, if they could read a book, they would be able to read it a mile and a half away. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's amazing. Now,
2: and hang on, hang it, on. Uh, what's, what's the shape of the eye? Because I know some birds of prey have like cat-like eyes where the iris is vertical? What, what's the shape no, of, the, of the falcon? No, the, ir- the,
5: the iris isn't uh, – uh, the, the pupil isn't vertical. Uh, it may look that way, but it really isn't. It's round like ours. Okay. And again, in all birds of prey, it's a colored iris, yellow or orange. Uh, but the falcon has only black. It's solid black, again, like a gray alien kinds of drawings that we've all seen it's solid also they can see up close and far away simultaneously now we can't even imagine that because our brains aren't wired that way this is why in falconry when you are carrying a falcon uh, for let's say hunting at medieval uh, you know events or things like that um, the falcon is hooded because their sight is so intense that if they're around a lot of people or commotion, it overstimulates their nervous system and they can have a heart attack. So the hood goes on the falcon; uh, it doesn't touch the eye, it's off the face, but it cuts out the light. They think it's night. They go, it, they go right to sleep, and their heart rate goes right down. Hmm. So uh, their sight is absolutely amazing. Now, of course. They were the god symbol of Horus. And Horus, of course, was the god of healing, but also of protection from evil and the god of the sun and the sky. So the first thing is understanding what a falcon's sight is. And I'll give you the relevance there in a second. The second thing is the hunting style. Their hunting style is completely different than all other birds of prey. If you look at a hawk or an eagle, first of all, they're lazy. If they can get roadkill, <laughs> they're very happy to get roadkill. But if not, um, they'll find a, a tall telephone pole or a tree or something high to perch in. Or they'll lazily, you know, waft on the the draft currents that are high in the atmosphere if you see a bird of prey circling it's going to be a hawk or an eagle it's not going to be a falcon you won't even see a falcon so one way you can tell the difference is that when they're flying uh, a hawk or an eagle if you look at the end of their wings the feathers splay out like fingers whereas a falcon's wing is a point like a jet plane in fact the swept wing wings of jets were taken from a falcon's wing. They come to a very, very sharp point. So with a hawk, perch, or they'll glide looking for something on the ground like a lizard or a snake or a rabbit if they can get it, and they'll swoop down and grab it with their talons and squeeze it to death and start feeding sometimes before their prey is actually dead. So that's the hunting style
1: Hmm. of a
5: hawk or an eagle. The falcon only hunts other birds from the air. It does not go for ground prey. And what it'll do, it'll go so high that you can't see it. And it'll look down waiting for a bird to fly under it, like a duck or a pigeon. Or In medieval times, they actually hunted swans with falcons. The falcon will will wait until it sees something flying beneath it and then it'll tuck its wings and drop
2: on it at 200 plus miles an hour. Holy cow.
5: It's the fastest animal on the planet.
2: With swept and, wings, which is why it can which, do that.
5: Exactly. And what it does is it puts its talons out and it punches. So it out shocks of the air, it. Completely knocks it out. it it often will then sweep around and catch it as it's falling and then take it off to eat it somewhere.
2: My gosh.
5: But it it won't go for ground prey because, obviously, you know, if it missed, if they they were going for ground prey, you'd have a hole in the ground with a big bunch of feathers. So that (laughs) doesn't work. So they only take other birds from out of the air. Um, And then, of course, the interesting thing about the peregrine, which is one of many different breeds of falcons. The peregrine is uh, native to all continents except Antarctica, and it was for a long time on the extinct list, going extinct. It was very, very endangered. And they brought it back by introducing it into the cities because peregrines, Nest high up on cliffs
2: several years so. ago, on the web, there was an office which had a webcam, and on the window ledge, like on the thirty fifth floor or something, a peregrine falcon built a nest and raised a family right outside this office window and it was all over the internet you could you could dial yeah you know falcon dot com and see the the mother sitting on the eggs and you know daddy coming and feeding her and then when the chicks were born they were so cute they would both go and hunt and bring it back and this was all over the world all you had to do was log on to this this website and bingo there in san francisco was a live falcon family being raised
5: Yeah, and the peregrines have been brought back because they were reintroduced to the cities, because there's lots of high skyscrapers (laughs) and plenty of pigeons.
2: That's true. So My gosh.
5: They also have this thing about them where they've been brought back from extinction. And so if we're looking at symbols and, you know, little pieces of ritual, we've got Their sight, which is, you know, and how their eyes work, which is almost alien and almost indescribable. They can see so far, you know, far-sighted animals. They only hunt other birds from the air, ground at all, in terms of their behavior.
2: So they're creatures of the sky.
5: Creatures of the sky, completely. And there's this overlay of the dead being brought back to life.
2: Yeah, how does that work in the myth?
5: Well, because they are they were brought back from extinction. And of course, we've got, you know, ashes and DNA kind of going to eternity.
2: Yeah, yes. Okay, why, why did the Egyptians focus on the falcon? as as Horus, as this god of the rising sun, as this heal, how do you get healing out of death out of you know basically a bird well, of prey
5: being being brought back to life is the ultimate healing, oh. Oh. but the reason they chose falcons is that because of the sight uh, there's a lot of uh sculpture and painting of uh, Hor- of Horus uh, being surrounded by multiple falcons behind the behind him because the falcon with their sight could see all over the kingdom all at once and could keep an eye on everything all at the same time.
2: Oh, okay. And so it, so was it's kind of like the of, all seeing there, there is this thing called the eye of Horus.
5: Yes, exactly. Well, how does exactly. that come about? Well, that that's a whole nother story, but it's not <laughs> due to the falcon at all. It has to do with, um, uh, Symbolically, in metaphysical tradition, your right eye is symbolic of your alignment with your higher self or spirit or soul. And your left eye looks outward into the world. So sometimes in painting you see a right eye or a left eye, and that uh, is relevant. Um, If people want to take a look at my one picture in the show notes, You can see the falconry group I'm a part of. I was – and my best friend were founding members of Falcon's Court, an educational nonprofit organization. And you can see us with our birds and hawks, uh, a falcon in the background, hooded, and a couple of owls. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Is
2: is that John Glenn? That's
5: John Glenn, yes.
2: Holy cow. That's
5: astronaut John Glenn, so – That that was really interesting. There was a a conference of the aeronautics and astronautics uh, in the early 2000s, and uh, the Boeing Corporation uh, asked us to be a presenter um, for the theme that year, which was the history of flight. So we set up a Da Vinci Skunk Works, and, (laughs) uh, and... had all kinds of Da Vinci drawings and his drawings of birds and his early flying machines, and we did a live a falconry presentation where we flew one of our hawks two inches over the heads of the audience back and forth.
1: Oh, and my. all the
5: Air Force boys were just amazed. Oh my. And Buzz Aldrin and his wife were there, and Mrs. Aldrin loved petting our Eurasian eagle owl.:
2: So what kind of, of, of uh, falcon uh, falcons, or birds of prey, I should widen it out? Are in that picture, which if you click on it, it gets full screen.
5: Uh, Going from the left to the right, uh, we see a Harris Hawk. Uh, Then there's me. Wait, wait, wait. wait.
2: Describe what each one is because, you know, they're all different.
5: Yeah, a Harris hawk is uh, a bird of prey that is indigenous to South America and the southwest of the United States. They're the only raptor that hunts in packs and lives in packs, like wolves. Why? And they, co- they coordinate. They share their mates. They share their food. They share everything. Uh, so they're, they're very... so they're
2: so they're like Air Force squadrons.
5: Yeah, exactly. Oh my God. And they've been known to stack each other up on each other's back in order to get a higher view of the landscape if it's too flat.
2: What do you mean?
5: Well, one will climb on top of the other one, will climb on top of the other one. You
2: mean like circus acrobats? Yeah. Oh, my God. So you can have, what, a stack of five (laughs) harazots?
5: Well, five is a little more much, but three, certainly. Holy Um, cow. And, and they're very popular with falcon, uh, falconers because they, since they're social, um, they bond with their falconer much easier than, than most other birds of prey. So that's the Harris hawk. It, it's really funny. I've seen uh, video of, uh, of falconry presentations in France and Italy that are supposed to be so authentic. And they're using American Harris hawks because they're easy to work with. <laughs> um But uh, so that's the the first one is the Harris Hawk. Then I'm holding, I'm standing there next to uh, John Glenn and I'm holding an English buzzard, which is not a vulture. It's the English equivalent to our red tail hawk. Um, And then it's it's hard to see, but standing behind uh, John Glenn is our Falcon and uh, he's hooded uh, because, you know, their sight is such that they need to be hooded to keep them safe and, and calm. And then we have two owls. That the next one is a great horned owl from the United States, and the far one is a Eurasian eagle owl, which is quite a bit larger than the great horned owl.
2: The one on the far right, just at the edge of the frame? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He looked... What was his name?
5: Socrates. Ah. Oh. Socrates. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, you know, the whole UFO hidden mystery thing about the aviary and birds playing some role in the secret, you know, government involved with UFOs and all that. And, you know, they call the two camps, the one camp that wants to keep everything secret forever. And then the other camp that wants to make it publicly known, like what's going on now. The secret keepers are the owls. Right. And the guys that want to make it public are called the roosters. Right. Roosters and owls. So there's this avian mythology behind all of this.
5: There's there's another little twist to that uh, rooster and owl thing. Um the rooster is one of the western symbols for the Ajna Chakra, which is the one in front of the forehead. And if you look in an anatomy you, you book,
2: mean You mean the so-called third eye?
5: It's called that. It really isn't, but it's called that. Yeah, the the rooster is one of the symbols for that. And the reason is, if you look at the bones in the skull, the bones of the face right there in that area are two sphenoid bones that look like wings and right in front of those wings is a little cup of uh, a little piece of bone called the crista which means coxcomb so there is in a sense uh, a rooster uh, in that particular area of the forehead
2: so wait if we have an opposition between cover-up and awakening and openness then, basically, the rooster is an occult symbol for awakening.
5: Yeah, exactly. Wow. The owl keeps you asleep at night And by the way, the, the owl that is usually associated with Athena or Minerva as the goddess of wisdom, so owls, you know, are usually shown as really smart birds. they're really not. They're really stupid. Compared to all other raptors, owls are really very basic, and they can bond with human beings pretty well, which is why you can pet them, which you don't want to try doing that with a hawk, you know?
1: Hmm.
5: They, the way they used, the way they used um, owls in the Middle Ages for hunting is that they would uh, take their hunting party out into the woods, they'd find a, a clearing, and then would stake the owl in the middle of the clearing – and wait for crows and ravens and magpies that hate owls to come and fill the air to warn all their friends, there's an owl here. Guy was filled with uh, blackbirds, then they'd send up the falcons.
2: My, my. Now, why did falconry as a, I didn't even want to use the term sport, you know, the sport of kings or something. Yeah. How did it get off, this is, oh, I hate myself. How did it get off the ground? <laughs>
5: Well, it started in China thousands of years ago, and it spread westward. And in, in fact, there there have been some wonderful films showing uh, Mongolian falconers working with eagles to hunt. Pretty impressive working with eagles uh, as as a hunting partner.
2: Well, and then uh, well wait, don't they absolutely kill the guy holding them on his arm?
5: Um,
2: they're heavy. It's, it, it,
5: they, they are heavy. We we had uh, – years back, we had uh, an eagle named Kenya, and uh, uh, it misstepped and uh, put its talon right through my friend's palm of the hand, and it took three three grown men to pull that talon oh out my of my friend's gosh. hand. Yeah, so it's it's not – So he was not
2: wearing a, a gauntlet?
5: Uh, he was. Of course he was wearing a gauntlet. Really?
2: It, it went through the leather of the gauntlet?
5: And went through his other hand he was adjusting the jesses at the at the uh the jesses are the little pieces of leather little strings that are attached to the the bird's uh, uh talons and he was adjusting those and uh, the eagle just reached out and just grabbed them, and there you go
2: so he didn't just but, uh, readjust his stance he literally went for your friend's hand
5: yeah kind of it nice, was it was God. an accident. It, it's just you know they're they're wild animals, hmm. and they always you know in falconry, they always have the option of flying away, and sometimes they do, which is heartbreaking if you put in years of training a bird and then they decide to fly off, but that's
2: their choice. How often does that happen
5: uh it It happens a, a good a good amount of uh of the time
2: really. Uh, it's, it's like, okay, enough of this human stuff. I'm going back to my life. Bye.
5: Yeah, sometimes that happens, especially with caught birds. Now, birds that have been bred um, for uh, a falconer from day one, the incident is, an, is is you know is high, obviously. Okay. But of course, as falconry moved from China uh, westward, it moved into medieval Europe, and there uh, arose a whole science of what class could own what bird, just like they had sumptuary laws where you could only wear certain colors if you were a certain rank, could only have uh, uh, falcons uh, or hawks if you were uh, a certain grade of noble. And the jeer falcon, which is the pure white ones, uh, they were only owned by kings.
2: So here's a dumb question. Why did the field become known as falconry as opposed to eaglery or hawkery or owlery. <laughs>
5: um, because falcons were the most uh they were the classiest. Really? They, that was what yeah, that was what royalty You know, used. If you were lower down on the food chain of nobles, you could have a hawk, and and this is even true today in terms of getting falconry licensing. You have to start out with a red-tail hawk, usually, or a a kestrel, which is a tiny, tiny little falcon that you know is too small to go after big birds. So it it eats bugs and stuff. Um, But uh, uh, a, a beginner. Uh, we'll start out with a red tail, and then as you progress, you can, you can, you know, pony up to, to having falcons.
2: I'm wondering if that caste system was somehow based on the falcon is the only one that swoops and hunts in the air at the highest level, and the others eat carrion and dead rabbits, and in other words, there's, pun intended again, a pecking order – because yeah. the falconry was was pure, it was ethereal, and the others were just kind of of the earth with wings exactly, oh wow,
5: and you know the 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 falcon's hunt
2: was sort of mysterious because it was so high in the sky, oh, they'd really like disappear, and then suddenly boom, there they were, and yeah, it was like magic, it was like you know the 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 prince or the princess or the king who could command that was commanding elemental forces of a mysterious nature. There you go. Golly. You know, we need to do a whole show on falconry with your friend because this obviously is at the core of the hidden part of NASA that I've been talking about for decades. And the, you know, the Holy triumvirate Osiris and ISIS and Horus. And yeah, I would like to, cause this is, this is fascinating. Okay. Okay. Uh, Panel including Ron Gerber, and I don't know whether I introduced Ron uh, before the last break. Anybody have any questions of our Falcon wrist? Is there a Falcon wrist (laughs) tonight?
6: There's a fancy name for it, but I'm not sure what it is. Georgia, what about uh, that's fascinating stuff, Georgia.
5: Oh well, like I said, it's just another sort of weird.
2: One of her her weird hobbies. Do you know that she wields well, a wicked broadsword? Not a rapier, you know, a broadsword.
6: Oh, good. Uh, I had one comment on this before it goes away, and I, um, then I'll go away for a the moment. The, uh, Georgia, did you know there are uh, some largely unexplored ruins in Iran, of all places, current-day Iran, uh, that are shaped like falcons?
5: Oh really?
6: Yeah, the it's like a it's like a platform, like uh, Zechariah Sitchin was so obsessed with, but it's uh, it's shaped like a falcon, and you know, obviously, all the temple stuff would be built on top of it, and it's long. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, I
5: I did not know that. That's that's really fascinating.
6: It is because it precedes the uh, origin of the Horus stories in Egypt. We don't know exactly by how much, but it's at least as old, and there's no Horace legends in uh, Persia. That's yeah,
5: right. well, well, again, if falconry, you know, started in China and came west, it would have uh, influenced those other civilizations, too. And, and you know, each would have its own relationship with the stories and the, the lore and stuff. Ooh,
2: well, thank you. <laughs> Andrew, I think you had a question. You're right.
5: Yeah, thank you, Georgia,
7: and thank you, Richard. Um, Georgia, what about the feathers? Like, I know in in like, ah. um, yeah. Please go with that.
5: Yeah, which w- what thing specifically did you want to know?
7: Well, I know in, in First Nations cultures, you know, like eagle feathers, for instance, are highly prized and they're adorned and you know, like you know, certain headdresses and stuff. Is, do we see the same kind of thing with falcons, or mm-hmm. are they just too small?
5: No, you you see the same kind of thing. Uh, The thing is that uh, it's important to let everybody know it is highly illegal to own a bird of prey feather. Oh, interesting. Unless you have a falconry license, you can't even own the feathers. They are so protected. There was an incident some years back of um, uh, the Clintons were in the presidency, someone made like a dream catcher and sent it to Hillary. And the FBI showed up on their door because it it was a a hawk feather that she wasn't legally supposed to have.
2: Okay, guys. We are at the top of the hour. My guests this morning, Georgia Lambert, Andrew Curry, Ron Gerbron, and Holger Eisenberg. And we are coming right back. We have so much to get into but what a splendid foundation to assess NASA's secret, enterprise, and Horus mission to the moon and beyond. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon. I uh, didn't get a chance to say that before, as you are all listening from around this round planet. This is our very special memorial tonight to the souls, literally, and in embodiment and in spirit on the secret, well, not so secret because everybody's talking about it, NASA Enterprise and Horus mission which are masquerading as the Peregrine Falcon Unmanned Robotic Mission, originally destined for the moon, and now, well, we don't really know. Can they do the burn? Can they raise that perigee so this mission does not end in the Earth's atmosphere somewhere northeast of Australia, but in fact can go on and on and on with the ashes of Magel and the great bird of the galaxy, and my friend Arthur Clarke and many others. We will find out as the morning and the days go on. Because I'm, Andrew, um, tell you what, let, let us, before we get to Andrew's very interesting research and ruminations, let me go to um, Holger, because Holger You've done a real deep dive into the mission itself. What do you think the chances are they're going to pull this out and turn it into an interplanetary mission?
8: That, that I was hoping to in the end after the accident here. <laughs> of course, that, that would be the, the, uh, the nicest outcome instead of the meteorite ending on Earth in, on the 5th, 18th or 19th. <laughs> well do we know tonight
2: the status because they've been very good astrobotic has been really really good i think they've given like five or six or seven update press conferences every few hours parameter here is if the fuel if the oxidizer is leaking and the leak is diminishing because as the pressure goes down there's less you know force pushing that into the vacuum do they have enough to do a burn raise the perigee and send this thing sweeping around the earth into into interplanetary space
8: that we don't know because that's still five days to go uh, until perigee and
2: uh, well they don't have to you remember when you do the burn it's days later they're going to see the effect so the earlier they do the burn while they still have fuel they could they could buy basically with computers and tracking they could calculate how much of a burn at the lunar distance they would have to do. Let me give you an analogy. The way rocket trajectories or spacecraft trajectories in space work, imagine that you take an old-fashioned wire coat hanger and you unbend it so it's just a long, kind of loopy, straight piece of wire. And then you hold it between your thumb and your forefinger, and you try very hard not to have the tip, a few feet away, wave around in the air. It's impossible. So the more they can do now, when they're days away from whipping around the Earth and then into the atmosphere, the more chance they have of a shorter burn that would raise the altitude of that perigee whip around so they would literally continue planetary space. Is there any discussion in the nets, on Reddit, on the... uh, uh, Astro Bot Botica website anywhere is there any discussion of trying to do this so they prolong its life and let it literally carry its inhabitants its members its crew uh, on their
8: forever journey I haven't I, I was looking for but I could not find anything but what I found that uh, that JPL is updating the uh, the observed trajectory right, and then uh, Independent researchers on Twitter, for example, are calculating the orbit and creating orbit diagrams and animations I have here in my items. Chandra, for example, or Tony Dunn, or Myson West here in my items. And they uh, made various predictions over the recent three days. And uh, first, it was looking like an impact on the moon. Then a few days, one day later, the lunar flyby into open space then. That would be nice for <laughs> well, enterprise, of course. <laughs> and then the, the latest from today afternoon, uh, the Earth's atmospheric uh, burn entry as a meteorite near Australia. That was the latest uh, calculation now from the actual data. And that is currently, if they say don't add any thrust from the engine most likely the latest outcome well
2: the fact is that given that this is a three-axis stabilized spacecraft remember initially when the centaur cut it loose and the springs moved it away from the you know parent second stage rocket which gave it the thrust on that looping long trajectory out to the moon's distance they reported initially they had a problem with power Because when they tried to orient the spacecraft toward the sun so the solar panels on top of it could drink in sunlight and charge the batteries, that attitude control was not working because there was some other unknown force that was trying to counteract the thrust of the little uh, attitude control thrusters trying to keep it aligned to the sun. That's how they figured out they had a leak and a leak in space. Remember that great... uh, video out the window of Apollo 13 when, uh, you know, Lovell is saying, you know, we basically have a leak. There's something venting into space. Well, that produces a propulsive force like a very low temperature rocket. So the attitude control system of Peregrine was fighting this torque, this other force, and it was using a lot of fuel to maintain an attitude pointing toward the sun. As the days have gone on, remember, it's now Saturday night, it's still alive, it's still got fuel, it still is pressurized because the leak apparently, as the pressure went down, as the leak, you know, expanded, whatever, the pressure reduced and so the leak has become much less and the lifetime of the fuel system much longer. So given that they should do this early as possible, I'm really surprised that no one's discussing doing a burn at the lunar distance to keep it from impacting the earth and therefore being set free like a Falcon returning to the wild, as Georgia just said, because why would you want it to burn up in the atmosphere? If there was anything you could do to stop it.
8: I was wondering as well. And the only, uh, explanation i had maybe their customers wanted it or preferred it this way instead of a random outcome over the next few days like in maybe they wanted absolutely avoid the lunar impact because it might have not been a preferred outcome for the for the peregrine customers so well
2: the the idea a lot. the idea that you could accidentally hit the moon I mean, believe me, even in the Earth-Moon system, you've ever seen a picture by Voyager or Galileo of the size of the Earth and the distance of the Moon and how tiny the Moon is compared to the Earth and the huge distance in between, 60 times the radius of the Earth. The odds of getting back to the Moon are really small, particularly if you do the burn correctly, where you use what's called an Oberth Maneuver. Where if you do another burn, if you have enough fuel in five days to do another burn as you whip around the Earth, you literally can steal some of the of the Earth's gravitational energy to add to the momentum of the spacecraft and slingshot you into an orbit totally around the Sun, but nowhere near the Moon, Venus, Mercury, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, I'm wondering why. They're not publicly talking about rescuing the mission because if they're doing tests of their onboard instruments, the five scientific instruments that NASA paid uh, Astrobotic 108 million dollars, which, by the way, is a very important ritual number. uh, I would think that would a prolong the life, give it an eternal rest in space for the the passengers, Gene, et cetera, et cetera, and Arthur, and allow them until it got far enough away from the earth that they couldn't hear it anymore, which is not likely given the DSN capabilities, or until it ran out of fuel and could not orient toward the sun and it ran out of battery power and then it just begins to tumble, but it would then tumble endlessly in space as this memorial, this so-called enterprise station that they talked about in their literature and the fact that no one is discussing this i find i find lots of things kind of strange
8: but it makes it much more interesting we don't know what you is would happening think in, in three days and it keeps and it would look then, like and maybe in the last uh, hour they fire it up and get uh, closely above the atmosphere like the famous maneuver in one of the Star Trek movies I remember around the sun.
2: <laughs> well but again the earlier you do this starting tonight as the trajectory is tossing a stone in the air it goes up so high and then it falls back well the trajectory of Peregrine was not escape so it goes up and then it will loop around and begin to come back and in four days it will impact the earth's atmosphere according to their latest projections if they're going to try to change that if they have any fuel left they need to do it tonight now and they should have been talking yeah. about it because what it would do would be to turn an obvious failure into a partial success and like with apollo 13 which was labeled as the nasa's successful failure They could rescue their reputations. They could rescue the Clips mission, which is this series of private, you know, corporate missions under NASA, you know, contract to go with commercial payloads to the moon. In other words, there's every incentive to do this. And I'm really rather surprised that nobody's talking about it. And the only reason it would not be possible is if they literally have run out of fuel and they can't do anything.
8: Yeah, from, from the engineering point of view, it indeed it would make sense to change it now if they can. But if you see the if you look at the whole mission, what from the engineering perspective? Why are they uh, launching uh, uh, two weeks before the moon is in the right position and then have to go around, make that loop at the distance of the lunar orbit, come back to Earth, and then? 15 days later can reach the moon with a second try that is on the, from the engineering level completely unnecessary. Exactly. Because uh, they, uh, for comparison, the, the Surveyor mission in the 19, late 1960s used almost the same technology after the first orbit. Well, see,
2: you raise, Holger, the interesting possibility, which of course I thought of right away that the spacecraft has no problems at all. It's in perfect health. There's nothing wrong with the tanks, the fuel system, pressurization. It's all a shaggy dog story because they really do want to loop it past the moon and into interplanetary space, like very similar trajectory to what Musk used with his test of his Falcon Heavy rocket when he launched his uh, red Tesla, into space and they went past the right hand the trailing side of the moon the moon moves from right to left when you look at it at night Uh, it's moving in the other direction because of the earth's rotation but it's actually moving around the earth from right to left Uh, and so if you go around the trailing right hand edge or side the moon's gravity will basically give it enough additional momentum velocity energy so it, it slingshots it into orbit around the sun, and orbit can literally reach the orbit of Mars.
8: Yeah, uh, that, that way is in my item six where one of the calculations was made with this slingshot around the moon as a possibility, and it would be spectacular because uh, it would be much at much lower altitude above the lunar surface and. Than uh, considered before and would provide uh, great images, better images than those from Artemis One, which are still missing from the from the nears distance.
2: Yeah, I think they have at least three sets of cameras on this thing, uh, both on the spacecraft itself as well as on some of the payloads, like the uh, one of the one of the little rovers that students at Carnegie Mellon built, which is sitting on the top deck. It's got a camera, and they've been activating all these experiments—the the five that NASA contracted for—and everything is working fine electronically. So why they wouldn't want to do everything to prolong the life? And if they can avoid hitting the moon, if they flew, let's say, a hundred miles above the moon, and turn those cameras on and you know beam the data back to Earth. In, a, in other words, they could they could pull a success out of failure. And I don't see anybody even discussing doing something
8: outside the box. Do you? Uh, 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 Even more ideas. uh, You could, uh, wait, first, uh, we already received one one image from the color camera that would even be sufficient for providing great images from the near lunar distance. Right. And then what what you could do is uh, just open the the bay door and uh, throw out the five robots which have wi-fi connection they actually, they actually have Wi-Fi, so wi-fi the standard wi-fi technology to communicate with the five uh, robots there and then you have a swarm of robots flying around in space taking images <laughs> over the lunar surface see back in the,
2: back in the heyday when i was working with nasa and i was covering nasa when you encountered a situation like this The crews worked 24-7 around the clock to rescue the mission and try to come up with an alternative mission that was in reach and would actually give you some useful information. In this case, keeping the spacecraft alive in space as it recedes from the Earth, if they were able to do an interplanetary swing by of the moon, as opposed to letting it burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. I mean, that just seems kind of like a stupid waste If they've got fuel and if they didn't have fuel, there would have been an announcement that, you know, well, it's run out of fuel and there's nothing we can do. Instead, their their press conference a couple days ago was that they had extended fuel because the leak was reducing and they could project a much longer life. In other words, everything is up for grabs and we're not getting the most interesting alternative even being discussed. And I don't get it.
8: Maybe they are currently thinking about what to do. Most interesting. They don't have time. They have planned,
2: Remember, they have this only a
8: works,
2: oh, This it's only easy. works if you yeah. do it now. You can't wait. You know, in the space business, it's either now or never. You know, and you, you usually have alternative plans. Like somewhere, somehow, someone should have said, "Okay, what happens if we have a fuel problem and we can't land? What's our backup? What's Plan B?" What's an alternative mission? Because if they really want to exercise the payloads, you know, they've got computers on board, brand new. They've got the engines, which are brand new. Uh, The big engines that are going to land them on the moon were built by uh, Jeff Bezos, Blue Origin. First time real space test of those engines. They've got new computers. In other words, as long as it stays alive in space, they can do things with it that will gain operational knowledge for the next mission so to let it die in four days by streaking into an entry over
8: the south pacific it just seems dumb yeah the, the meteorite outcome that would be the, the worst yeah i'll tell you what <laughs>
2: let's let's do this let's let you go and look to see if there's any new updates i want to turn to um uh, ron we'll, we'll come back to you when you find out the latest news yeah. ron You and I have been discussing a real mystery for the last several days around this. Uh, I've been talking about the two Celestis packages on both the lander, on the Peregrine, on the Falcon, on Horus, which contain the ashes of Majel and Jean and the DNA of Arthur, and several other interesting uh, uh, notables, as well as I think 60 some quote civilians. And then on the Centaur rocket, which is the, the, did the third burn and is now definitely en route into a heliocentric orbit of the sun, there's something like 240 more capsules from Celestis. And we know because of the webpage, if you actually go to the uh, links in my section tonight, let me go and see which one it is. Um, you're going to want to look at item number... Let me get this right here. Item number four and item number six uh, are relevant. There are links in there to Celestis. There's an entire manifest of the crew on this Enterprise mission on all the spacecraft, both spacecraft, the Peregrine Lander and the Centaur uh, Enterprise flight or Enterprise mission, as space.com termed it. And just before the launch, they added two more uh, little capsules. Uh, one of which is, I think, um, uh, the executive producer under Gene of Star Trek. Uh, his name escapes me at the moment, but it'll come to me.
6: Tr- Trumbull.
2: Yeah, no, 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 no. D- Doug Trumbull was was involved with the 2001. No, this is this was uh,
6: yeah,
2: uh, Robert Justman. That's his name, Robert Justman. Oh is the guy behind the scenes that helped Gene make Star Trek what it was. And he is literally flying into interplanetary orbit tonight on the Centaur rocket, which was always destined to escape the Earth-Moon system. But there's a third layer to this layers of mystery. There's another company, which also since the 90s has been sending people's ashes into space, called Elysium. And for some extraordinary reason, those people, those spirits, that DNA, those ashes, nobody who's paying the same amount of money as the people paying to send their loved ones' ashes on the Celestis payloads, the Elysium payloads, the number of people, the number, the amount of ashes, the amount, nothing about Elysium is known. It's absolutely stupidly top secret and no one I've talked to except you has an interesting yeah. idea about what might be going on. So as our resident generalist who thinks outside the box every single day, why do you think people who are paying twelve, fifteen thousand dollars to send their loved ones on the Elysium package? on the same cruise ship, on the same starship, why do you think they're totally, absolutely secret and we can't find out anything on the same NASA mission?
6: That is a puzzle. I've never heard of it happening before, although you might have. Uh, Never, ever, ever,
2: ever, ever.
6: Yeah, they seem very detail-oriented over at um, Astrobotic and they have been giving us lots of details even if they're a little confusing so the fact that this would be held back just tells me well the first thing it made me think of as i told you was i said well this is off the wall uh literally was the wall of honor at uh, langley oh
2: you know most
6: everybody knows they have knows they have this uh wall covered with a slowly growing number of mostly unlabeled occasionally they out they bring somebody out but uh for some reason of um, past workers for the Central Intelligence Agency and thereabouts that, um, you know, are still secret. You know, they can't be publicly announced. You know, and uh, so they uh, occasionally it happens that there's no point in keeping it secret anymore and they can put their name on there. Well, these are agents in the
2: field. These are people who have died for the country. These are people who basically deserve the nation's honor. And they're represented on this granite wall by just stars with no names, nothing else.
6: Yeah, I think mostly people from inside. But, you know, I don't have the list either. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, the, uh, yeah, and I thought, okay, secret space program. Because one Hey, of the, Georgia, awful...
2: Georgia in the chat, in the Skype chat, just said it. She just got right. it.
6: Bingo. So what is your uh, best model? Uh, the best model for that yep. well, that the secret space program's been around quite a while, maybe even longer than the time frame in which that British gent that hacked into NASA and is still in trouble uh, who said that he right, he came across manifests of ships and names you never heard of and ships you never heard of, and heaven knows what else he didn't get a chance to look at a whole lot of it because A, he was kind of buzzed at the time, so a lot of it just floated by, but he realized it was something important, and then he mentioned it to somebody, and all of a sudden they've been uh, chasing him like uh, Hans Blofeld or or something out of a 007 movie. Uh, So I laugh, uh, but that kind of hacking, I can understand. Back at that point in time, they really were a little naive, uh, in the government, they honestly didn't seem to be aware of the fact that there were a lot of people looking because I wasn't hacking them. But I was just poking around in the files at JPL one day because there was that little flag that said, go up one level, go up one level. And I'm like, OK, OK, OK. And I found all kinds of things. None of them I don't think were top secret. But the point is, it was all pretty open because they didn't think anybody could look at it. So he may have gotten some of the same treatment in Britain. But anyway... I think there is one. I think it's been there a long time. I don't know what what state it's in at this point of the time. When you, time, when you say there, was, there
2: is one, you mean a secret space program using anti gravity and not stupid rockets?
6: Right. Well, they could have used rubber bands for all I know, but they, <laughs> uh, that makes sense if they if they had it. Uh, oh, I know people that are trying uh, that are. Um, anyway, they, yeah, there probably was other technology involved. But, uh, you know, the, the Army had plans for such things way back during the uh, during World War II, if it should happen to come up. And uh, so I think they managed something. I don't know how long it lasted. You know, maybe they hung around for a little while and then either expired because they couldn't get home or uh, uh, had figured out a way to get them back and it just has been sitting there a long time. But there's too much evidence that there's something going on there that probably isn't Little Green then that's been involving people from earth. Could Why would you fabulous...
2: spend the money? Cause by the way, the sliding scale for the enterprise flight, uh, slash mission and the Horus, you know, mission to the moon started around 9,000. Uh-huh. The final number was $11,095 and 50 cents. And there's a 19 passage There's Yes. To get on one of the oh, little okay. capsules to put your DNA or your loved one's ashes. In other words, there's a 195 in the middle of that number.
6: Right, and it's still less money than a lot of cruises cost. Exactly.
2: Okay, we, uh, are, I, at, we are at yeah. the bottom of the hour. Everybody hold it there. My guests this morning are too numerous to mention. Go to the website. You'll see their names, their bios, their background. You're on the other side of midnight, and we're just discussing permutations of NASA's own Enterprise mission. A memorial to Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry and the crew of the USS Enterprise. We shall return.
0: other side of midnight
2: Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, soon-to-be Sunday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. There's something incredibly interesting and mysterious and multi-layered going on. And Andrew and I have spent an entire week, we've, we've probably talked more this week than we've talked for the last six months, trying to figure it out. So, Andrew, let's start with big picture you know, what's the mega thing we're talking about that we haven't hit on the head yet with this layered symbolism? Because I remember way back when I tried to get Gene interested in doing something real. Uh, Kind of over his objections, I organized this group of people to rename the NASA Space Shuttle from Constitution to Enterprise. And there was Gene and all the other members of the crew proudly in front of the uh, uh, first space shuttle that was going to fly in the altitude and landing tests with Enterprise proudly on her side and that would not have happened without this push to make the Star Trek universe come backward a couple of hundred years and, and, and therefore be here now as part of the inception of the contemporary space program, and then NASA kind of moves in, absorbs the concept of enterprise, and tonight there literally is an enterprise mission heading for an eternal orbit of the sun. Your thoughts, my
7: friend yeah well richard i I smelt a rat' <laughs> at the start of this thing. You know, when, well, when then you should have little...
2: a falcon handy. No, no, I'm sorry, a <laughs> hawk, a hawk. You need a hawk, okay?
7: A hawk, yeah, not not a falcon, because it would, cra- like George said, crash into the floor. Cause I mean,
2: I'm wondering keep... if, remember Gene's nickname uh, at Paramount in the studios when this was all being created way back when, when I got to know him. I just called him up one day. Well, that's a long other story. His his name, literally all around the industry was Great Bird of the Galaxy. And I thought, you know, okay, Phoenix. I thought Eagle. I thought, you know, American Bald Eagle. I've got to say, after George's incredibly interesting backgrounder tonight on the deepness of Falcons and falconry, I'm wondering if Gene is on the Horace mission flight because the Great Bird of the Galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, was really a falcon. He was Horace in disguise. And all of this pretense, he, you know, we'd have dinners or we'd have lunch or I'd go up to their house and I'd fix them, you know, Swedish pancakes for breakfast. And I kept saying, you've got to get into O'Neill. You got to get into the O'Neill colony thing. You got to do something in the real world. There's this huge constituency, because of course I've always thought politically, how do we get people behind the NASA program to basically get off this damn, you know, tiny speck of dust. And he would say, no, no, no. My job is television. I'm an entertainer. I don't do that. And it looks like the great bird of the galaxy was up to his damn pinion feathers in secret agendas all along.
6: Well, he did look a lot more like a pelican than a uh, paragon. (laughs) So Andrew,
5: remember, remember also there is the constellation Aquila, which yes. is the eagle that flies to
2: the south. Yes. Now, do you want to know something really amazing about Aquila? It's the eagle. It was the star system around which Forbidden Planet was placed by the Disney and MGM and a couple other studios who all collaborated in 1956 on that amazing science fiction classic set at Altair 4, the fourth planet of Altair. Well, Altair 4 in our analysis over decades and I actually did a presentation in uh, at Joshua Tree one year uh, attended by a secret service agent who was no more secret than I am, whose name shall remain nameless, and it turns out that Altair 4 was a substitute for Mars. And the entire plot, I got to do a whole show with the right people some night on the the creation of Forbidden Planet as a substitute for Mars because the film, stunning film, is replete with Mars references, thinly veiled, and hyperdimensional physics references, thinly veiled, and Altair itself, which is the main sequence star, it's kind of like Sirius in terms of size and And temperature and age, it's an AO type star, a blue-white star, about uh, twice as uh, massive as the sun, uh, 10, 11,000 degrees Kelvin temperature, like 40, 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And in the terrestrial skies, wait for it, it's at 19.5 degrees latitude, celestial latitude. 19.5 degrees so the whole Altair thing which of course claim some have claimed that gene lifted Star Trek from the plot line of Forbidden Planet and it goes on and on and on so Andrew you smell something
7: Well, well well on that actually on Forbidden Planet it's funny Richard I read something a while back, I think I was talking to you about Leslie Nelson, the
2: actor that was in that. Um, yeah, he was, a, he, he was He was. the Captain Kirk of the um, – uh, what was it? What's the name of the ship? Oh, darn. The C-67D or something like that. What was What was yeah. the – go ahead.
7: Well, I, I just remember reading something about uh, – it was something about his biography one time, and I think at first – I have a point. saying this, I'll get to it. I think at first him and the other actors are like, are they going to play this movie sort of tongue-in-cheek? And it became very clear from the director that, no, 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 you need to be very sober about this. I I just remember reading something about that. Are you aware of that, Richard? Because I I know I bumped into something and I was like, oh. like They were almost like, oh yeah, right, okay. And then it was like, no,
1: no, no, no,
2: no, no. this is a very... Actually, my... uh, sources, intelligence sources, are just the opposite. Oh, really? It was designed to be a very serious film because, of course, remember the Roddenberry rule. If it's real, it'll be on television. When I do the analysis show, I will show how basically Forbidden Planet was a tour de force, big screen extravaganza to get a big audience, to get the in crowd, the, the movers and shakers of Earth, to realize the incredible dangers of the hidden technology and physics all around us in this solar system. It was a cautionary tale. Do not turn on the Krell technology because it will wipe out the Earth. Humans are not capable. Remember what Walter Pigeon said as Dr. Morbius? Again, death, okay, Morbius. Remember what he said? From time to time, those trinkets I deem useful but innocent I will give to earth. The rest I will retain. In other words, he was setting himself up as a tin pated delusion of godhood to decide what high-tech, hyperdimensional technology that he had gleaned from 20 years of studying the Krell when he in, uh, was stranded, uh, when their Valerathon ship uh, blew up as they were trying to leave 20 years before, he would dole it out well that's exactly what our guys appear to have been doing with UFO technology and physics and you know instrumentation since the UFO phenomenon dawned in the 19 you know 40 1947 19.47 19.5 in other words that film was designed to be a mainstream cautionary tale this is the danger if we don't handle this properly and the properly was we don't even talk about it and the one little caveat where they acknowledge the need for a lighter touch remember the cook remember the guy who played the cook who basically got Robbie the robot to make him 60 gallons of of 80 proof whiskey that was that was the fun kicker in the film which otherwise was dealing with terribly weighty subjects and it was one of the only collaborations among all the studios at the time it's like they all got together because the powers that be above them mandated this film come out at the beginning remember this was just the year before Sputnik so no it was not meant to be funny at all it was meant to be star trek the you know the federation the serious idea of how we would enter this new realm and meet whoever's out there, and then something sidetracked it, sabotaged it, suborned it, and we've been stuck not knowing what we're surrounded by for 70 years.
7: Well, I guess my point is is that whatever it is that I read, and I honestly can't remember, there may have been coming in among some of the actors like, well, what are we dealing with here? And my, my point is what you were saying is like people like Roddenberry, there's like an inner core. You know, it's like watching today the Kansas City Chiefs playing um the Miami Dolphins in the freezing cold in Kansas. Um way at the top is um what's her face? That that singer that's very popular right now, dating one of the football players, Kelsey. Oh that's her name. She's super famous.
6: Taylor Swift. Taylor Taylor Swift, yes. Like
7: she's behind glass, partying away. Everybody else is freezing their butts (laughs) off. So it's like those people know what's kind of going on, but everybody else is sort of left in the dark and, be, and being entertained. And it's like with this mission, I just – like when, when suddenly there's a problem, I'm like, oh, okay. But it wasn't until I talked to you that, I, that you said, oh, that's that's like – are you kidding me? This is, the,
2: this is the stupidest problem to have yeah. because you got a brand-new rocket, the Vulcan rocket, <clears throat> hint, hint.
1: Yeah.
2: It's got a million parts. They've never flown it. This was the first test flight. Look at what happened to Musk trying to fly his rocket. Twice now. And ULA, Lockheed and, and and Boeing get together. They produce this rocket. It performs flawlessly. And a technology which is so much simpler and has been developed over half a century, going back to the first soft landing on the moon that I was at NBC for that early June Second, 1966, Dawn Morning, Surveyor One, lands perfectly with technology that's equivalent to, to quote a Spockism, stone knives and bearskins. And in the 21st century, they can't make the lousy plumbing work. What is wrong with this picture?
6: Yeah. No, uh, so ro- sure? yeah. oh, no, go ahead. Robert. Oh, okay. Andrew, sorry. Sorry, I just thought of something that ties together both forbidden planet and this mission because they're both they both are showing a great deal of aversion to doing just certain things in the case of uh things like forbidden planet and i could cite a whole bunch of tv shows and movies where they get right to mars and then the show is over or something and what you say about the uh Alien technology and its transference and stuff, that's one of the inferences that, you know, something that might happen. And no, 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 we can't have this happen. And in the case of the uh, possible members of the uh, Space Force or the secret programs that are in that secret capsule, or secreted capsule, I should say, the. Uh, uh, they would argue. Wait wait wait, wait, wait,
2: wait, wait, wait. You're, you're talking about. <clears throat> the the Bennu sample that for four blankety-blank months they haven't been able to get into because of lack of a screwdriver.
6: Oh, that's next on the list. No, I'm just <laughs> saying that between, between the uh, Peregrine mission and uh, the point you were making, almost making, about uh, Forbidden Planet, for some reason, Mars isn't to be talked about, not seriously. And in the case of the secret space program, obviously they're not meant to be talked about either, but if you were one of them, in your memory banks, when you rif- if you had ever thought about what you wanted to happen to your remains, if you happen to, you'd rather go out into the galaxy, uh, you know, pull a gully foil. You know, it's uh, gully foil is my name and Terra is my nation. <laughs> okay. My dwelling place, the stars, the destination. Yeah, uh, Alfred Bester was brilliant. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think that. You know that's like a connection. This is uh, uh, of secret things, Timmy. And you're right about the other possibilities you can tag in there. That'd be a nice segue into what I believe Andrew has to say about that very thing. Aren't you talking about the samples, Andrew? Uh, uh,
7: of of this mission or Bennu? Uh, Bennu. Bennu. Uh,
6: related matters.
7: Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I wasn't thinking about that at the moment.
6: I was more
7: circling around this like a falcon, <laughs> gyro
6: spirals. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Well, reminds okay, me of sorry. a sorry. Little... No, I mean I... on, gentlemen. Well, the thing is, Ron, it, it
7: it just struck me as when I read the article, and then I I was like, oh, this is weird, and then we started to chirp. On about it, I know. Um, Ruggiero came in and had some things to say, and and then I spoke to Richard, and I said, Richard, this is like, like this is you know like we, we're gonna this is like a you know like in those old cartoons where someone would get a big giant bomb and it would just sizzle and go hello or you know it would pop out and just go pop you know a flag Wily or a coyote something. for instance yeah, that, yeah you know something silly and it's like you what all this build up all these payloads all this symbolism just to go poof in the night no. And, and this idea of just, okay, well, we're either going to burn into the atmosphere and just have a big ash scattering along with, you know, everybody's, as we said, what is it, Richard, 17 to 20 payloads or something?
2: It's, it's of- supposed to be 20 payloads, five instruments, scientific instruments from NASA, for which they paid $108 million. Now, why is that number important? Because it's part of the lunar radius. The lunar radius oh. is 1,080 miles, half of 2160 which are all hyperdimensional as part of the physics. Remember we're in a designer solar system. So they literally spent uh, a fractal of the number and hundreds of millions of dollars for these five payloads. They're going to do nothing because they're going to burn up in the atmosphere and they won't even get, you know, a week or two of exercise and making them work and seeing how they react to the vacuum, et cetera, et cetera.
7: Yeah. And so, My feeling, or the other option, was well, maybe we can crash it into the moon.
2: And I'm thinking, oh,
7: that's a terrible way to, to, you know, jettison off everybody's ashes and then smash all the instruments. And then, of course, the Navajo start piping up and saying, ah, you can't do that in the first place, anyways. Like they were starting to say, no, 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 you can't put human remains on the on the moon because it's sacred to our nation, and it's part of the the star. Well, let me stop
2: you there because I've been thinking about this, and I actually read. Uh, the, the the head of the Navajo Nation, I think he's technically called the president of their council yes. these days, yeah. um, who, of course, is the descendant of a previous president who made a little bit of a fuss, not very much, 27 years ago, when the ashes of my friend and colleague Gene Shoemaker, basically the guy at the Flagstaff at, in uh, Arizona at the U.S. Geological Survey, who created the astro cartography branch, mapped the moon with Gerard Kuiper, after whom the Kuiper belt is named, gave NASA the proper photography to make the map so Apollo could work, became the kind of chief geologist of NASA of the whole solar system as we would go to a new planet. Shoemaker would, he was a really amazing guy, he and his wife Carolyn, and then he gets killed some years ago in a collision in the middle of Australia looking at meteor craters and they put his ashes on the lunar prospector mission, the first mission back to the moon since Apollo that was not landing. It was going into orbit to do surveys of water potentially and, you know, surface composition, all that. And then at the end of the mission, they deliberately crashed the prospector onto the moon, carrying Gene's ashes. And there wasn't a peep in the public Discourse now. The current guy, the current president, says, "Oh, my predecessor, I think his name was Hale, uh, raised you know, uh, raised objections." And I'm looking at all this, and it's kind of like another Potemkin village. It like it it feels stylized. It feels like really what we're what we're seeing is a Native American metaphysical space. Is more than just physical stuff out there. It's got some deep psychological occult metaphysical connection to humanity more not just the navajo and let's take a quick segue over to georgia what do you think that this is really just to get people to think bigger in the only way they can think bigger now which is some stupid controversy
5: well uh i think you're right with that uh we are, as a, as a planet right now, so punch happy with all of the crap that's going on in every country, politically, religiously, everything, it's going to take something really huge to even be noticed.
2: So you have to be a signal in the noise. You've got to be a burr under the saddle blanket, and the quickest way – To get headlines is to not be a cheerleader. It's to be opposition. It's to be an enemy. It's to be somebody who is basically writing the wrong blog, saying nasty things. And that's the way you get
6: airtime. Seems to be. Uh, Richard, you just solved it all. Yes. Really? (laughs) Yeah, it's all your fault. Oh, they don't want your somebody does. Not yours, Georgia. Dear heavens. heavens, No, Uh, no, Richard. Uh, because they don't want you somebody doesn't want your doo-doo on the moon. That's all. Oh, oh
2: good God. The last. <laughs> well, well, Rich, yeah, go, Richard, go, back, right, back, go, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah,
7: just before we move maybe to the Ava, Ava, Navajo perspective, um, which you know we can't well, I can't give it justice, but at least I can touch on some things. And I know we're coming up to the um, top of the hour. But when you were mentioning the loops, the potential for you know, doing these sort of gravity um uh, launches around uh Well the remember Earth.
2: Holger like, pointed out that this has never happened before. It's not a slow boat to China. It's not designed to save energy like, you know, previous missions, the South Koreans and some others. Right. It basically is an Apollo 3 days out, 3 days back, 3 days out and then you land. But why the double loop? Because that's sure. the only way you could convert the lander mission Sub Rosa clandestinely into an escape mission to carry these canisters these ashes this dna in an eternal flight around the sun without giving the game away
7: well on that note um my wife went to uh well we had a a neighbor unfortunately she passed away uh like uh, just before the end of the new year and she was hindu uh and I mean, she she was born in Ethiopia. Very different gal, um, but you know, totally westernized, but not. And my wife went to the funeral, and one of the things that she observed was that the family and maybe the very very close sort of confidants and friends, the body. I think it was an open casket, and the people did wrote like they walked in rotations around the body in this sort of ritual of you know, in a circular, I don't oh know which direction. Oh my God, Andrew.
2: Rotation, yeah. rotation, rotation. Yeah, and we're seeing the same possible thing
7: here now with this spaceship is to literally do
2: rotation. Well, <laughs> hang on, hang on. Let me, let me go back to Georgia because Georgia.
5: Did you guys ever see that video of the turkeys circling the dead
2: cat? Oh my counter-clockwise? goodness.
5: clockwise You're
2: right, Georgia. You mean on the ground? You remember that? yeah yeah walking yeah. in like like a processional file procession there we go procession yes in a, in a
5: perfect circle it's the perfect. weirdest thing ever
2: and yes. and, the, and there were dozens and dozens and dozens of them yeah yeah maybe hundreds it was like they were having a ritual
7: yes yeah in, so in, in,
8: in this case The loop was around nothing. There was nothing there. There was no moon. It was around the the lunar orbit, but around nothing.
2: Hmm. Unless there is... physical.
8: Exactly. I was just going to say, unless there's
2: something... (laughs) Because we don't know if we're living with parallel timelines. I've had the distinct feeling over the last five years that there's something else going on just beyond the mirror that is parallel to what I'm going through here. But there's, uh, there in other words, in that parallel reality, Holger, the, there, there, there could be another moon. There could be another, object. in other words, it's, it's pointing out in this side of the mirror, going back to a metaphor that Andrew and I have talked about. It's mirroring what's going on in another dimension that we can't directly see, but somebody's higher level hyperdimensional math, says is there and you do this to make something here at a higher level at an occult level at a spiritual level happen boy are we mixing our metaphors tonight
8: (laughs) it's wonderful
2: so let me go back to Georgia years ago I was discussing with Stan Tennan. oh I wish he was here and part of this conversation and you know he had this incredible set of eclectic interests And he was very focused on the Great Pyramid and how to reveal its hyperdimensional anti-gravity aspects. And his answer was, well, you simply vibrate the damn thing. If you shake it, you know, the physics will amplify and weird things would happen. So then we got into the whole thing of, you know, Egyptian gods and are they metaphors for real physical forces that have been analogized and personified To the point where their real origins, the real connection, has been lost, and that brought us to Horus, which of course is the rising sun. And then I asked him the same question that I asked you, because he was into this stuff. I said, "Well, why falcon?" And I he said, "Well, you know, the falcon, it does something very different than hawks, and you know, the same thing you were saying." He said they spiral. And the spiral represents the vortex of the physics of the ether. And that's why they were identified with the rising sun, which is really a metaphor for the physics. And I thought, oh, my God. So the spiral, hoger around the earth is part of this hidden Horus ritual, if you follow This line of reasoning. Now, there's something else that's important. There's something else.
7: And that's the break. (laughs) uh,
2: Are are, are we... Oh, yeah. uh, Keith, you've got to tell me. You've got to
6: tell me. Come (laughs) on.
2: Good grief.
6: Why do people
2: do this? Okay. We are having our own fascinating enterprise mission. As the mission itself is sailing toward the Earth, will one half of it crash into these planets or will they bring it out in an eleventh hour rescue so it becomes an ongoing Enterprise Mission? This marks the potential. You're on the other side of Midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
4: The Other Side of Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel, or as an environment to your endeavors. 8 cents an episode, 2.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com.
2: And welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight for this now Saturday night grading into Sunday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. As we're talking tonight, this spacecraft, this Peregrine, clandestine Horus mission has turned around and is headed back to a fate of catastrophe and disillusion and extinction in the atmosphere of Earth. Unless At the last minute, NASA unveils a plan B, a secret mission within a mission, which could literally rescue it by turning on the engines, raising the perigee so it sails around the Earth and into interplanetary space forever and beyond. Is that going to happen? I don't know. And none of our panelists tonight know, but we can hope. Okay, so where were we? Okay, where were we, Andrew?
7: Yeah, Richard, I'd like to talk a little bit about the sort of Navajo connection because I find it really, really interesting, and I think it's more than just. Um, I, I know my first reaction until I started to scratch a little bit the surface was like, oh dear, here we go, we're gonna. Equality, woke, and da, 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 which, you know, I mean, those are good things, equality, equity and all this kind of stuff. But when we take well, it to wait, the wait,
2: end wait, wait, wait. you know where that started, don't you? No. With Gene Roddenberry. Remember Roddenberry, when I called Gene that morning after Isaac Asimov had told me that they were going to take Star Trek off the air and I had a radio show. So I was brash and young in those days. Change much, have I? Anyway, I called up Hollywood. I found him in the damn phone book and I got him on the phone and we began an incredible relationship and friendship. And I wound up advising on Star Trek, the original, et cetera, et cetera. And he was sitting, he said, on the phone, he said, I'm sitting on my basement floor and I'm working on an idic." And I said, what? He says, an idic. This is going to be a medal that Spock wears because it commemorates infinite diversity in infinite combination, i.e. the federation ideal, i.e. D.E.I. in our society. So Gene Roddenberry started the idea that ultimately human beings have to respect each other and their diversity. Otherwise, the human race is doomed.
7: And And I agree, Richard. You know, we have to find a way to work together to move forward. I absolutely 100% agree. But my point is, I don't believe NASA's doing this, like sort of acknowledging um, the Navajo just because, you know, they're being woke. I I, I just don't buy that at all because this is a really, like, this is an old relationship uh, and maybe much, much older than we even know. I have a few notes about the Navajo if I can just
2: yeah, read my
7: notes. So apparently um, as of 2021 there's pretty much 400,000 um, Navajo you know, tribal members in the United States and it is the largest federally recognized tribe in the U.S. and it has the largest um, reservation in the country so it's 25,000 square miles which is approximately the size of the state of West Virginia. So this is a this is a pretty, you know, significant group of people with some pretty big land. Um, now, I—it's really easy to find these articles, and you know, we could potentially go to my my items. But
2: essentially, yeah, let's let walk us through. Let's do that, okay? Yeah.
7: Okay. So if you go to the show page, tap on that, come to the guest page, and you find my items under Andrew, just tap on that. And you go to my number one. So NASA and the Navajo Nation have had this, basically this partnership that they began in 2005. And, and there's a page even on the NASA site. If you just tap on it, it's called um,
2: oh, a- astrobiology it's slash NASA. No, I'm sorry, oh. dot NASA dot gov slash education.
7: Okay, so maybe the link is not. Oh, there it is. I, I just tapped on the picture. You should tap on the link, otherwise you just get yep. to the thing. So this comes directly from the NASA site. Um, it's called the Astrobi- You might have just said it. Astrobiology at at NASA. Life in the universe. So they're basically saying it now. And this was started 2005. As a whole description here, basically it was some educators and elders from the Navajo Nation came to NASA and said, "Hey, we would like to work with you." to sort of train our youth, but we want to respect, you know, our perspective on, you know, how we see the world and, and the universe with the, you know, more, um, you know, some, you know, sci- scientific, uh, side of things, you know, so almost like merging the heart with, with the mind. And well, we now hit 2024 and guess what, Richard, that's 19 years. So we are,
2: <laughs> yeah.
7: Isn't that interesting? So, so, in, so, there,
2: in, so in six months, <clears throat> Something's going to happen. (laughs) 19.5 years.
7: Yeah, yeah. Well, I I want to read something here because I know we could read this um, one way, and this comes directly from from the page from NASA. So they created a guiding strategy uh, which also emerged that scientific and cultural knowledge would be taught together in a, quote, dual learning environment, unquote, in which both ways of knowing are held equal. Now you could argue, well, this is for the young people because they want to have their youth, um, you know, become more involved in science. And in fact, there is an engineer in NASA who was heavily involved with the Perseverance program. And I didn't put that up. I, maybe I'll get Keith to do that. This is from um, Native News Online, from 2001. And the title is a Navajo engineer talks about life at NASA and the rover set to land on Mars. So he's he was involved and still is with the Perseverance rover mission now he spent five years helping to develop Richard the drill (laughs) on the Perseverance uh, rover and so this guy yeah isn't it interesting so he's a Navajo fellow and so we have this partnership going on it's hitting 19 years and like you said there was really not a peak when um, Shoemaker Shoemaker? yeah Gene Shoemaker
2: Shoemaker. two genes amazing yes Gene Shoemaker
7: And yet now we get this sort of, you know, resistance from the Navajo. Well, I would like, we'll, we'll come back to that, but I want to go back to my, my items. And I want everybody to scroll down to my first poster, which is number seven, because since we talked about it. So if you tap on number seven, it says NASA and the Navajo Nation. And if you enlarge it, their number one picture in my poster is Gene Shoemaker lecturing astronauts at Meteor Crater, Arizona in May 1967. So Uh, Richard, you might want to talk about this, but the the Apollo astronauts were training in areas, you know, around the United States and probably far aflung. Well, they also
2: went to the volcano fields in in Hawaii. But yeah, they basically, if you can't do geology on the moon as a prep, you got to do geology on Earth as a prep. And then you translate that knowledge uh, to the moon when the Apollo guys got there. And that's what they did. And Gene Jumaker was a crucial, crucial part of the Apollo crew briefing. Uh, that made them so successful, particularly the last mission, uh, Apollo 17.
7: Yeah, and then this, so this image is literally on Navajo land. This this meteor crater in Arizona yep. is on Navajo land. So Winslow,
2: this Winslow, Arizona. I, I took yeah. Robin there, and it was so funny because we went into the gift shop, and somebody behind the counter says, oh, Mr. Hoagland, we were just talking. I, I couldn't, obviously, I was training, you know. Robin was kind of dumbfounded, but yeah, it's a uh, if you're into this stuff, it it circulates. There 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 are communities that talk about this kind of stuff.
7: And you use a perfect word to segue into the next image. So this image of this this uh, red rock face is from that NASA link. I don't know if you noticed it when when we were first looking at the image. They put a hole, or I mean maybe the hole is naturally there, but I think it's oh, photoshopped no, 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 in. No
2: the, ho- no, the hole is there. I, well, oh, it n- is. well, there are those holes because you know who spotted this and has spotted this kind of alignment in Utah? John Womack. John Womack. You literally can look at certain star alignments and constellations like the Pleiades through the natural eroded holes in these mesas in Monument Valley in, in Utah. And what NASA's done, because this looks like it's a kind of a constructed... Thingy, they yeah. they basically taken that idea and put it on their own website. Wow, yeah. Because this looks the, like either a Hubble deep field image or maybe a web image.
7: Yeah, and this is what I mean is that we go further with the Navajo because this is literally from that, that you know that partnership page, and they've because um, well, obviously it's a well, time, you know, so. that John's
2: model is these are portals. Which well, is why your third picture yes. on
6: that page. You describe it, Richard.
2: <laughs> this is the Guardian on the, in the episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. Literally, that allows Spock and Kirk to go back and realign the timeline after McCoy, who's on some kind of uh, drug high that he inadvertently injected himself with on the bridge, <clears throat> goes back in time and changes everything to where the Federation doesn't exist, Earth doesn't exist. In other words, they had to go back through this portal, which looks eerily like the photo on the NASA page just above.
7: Yeah, everything is so evocative. Like for the Navajo...
2: And this okay, is all just happenstance. Least... This is just coincidence. You realize that? Yeah. Just total yeah. coincidence, right? Just,
7: yeah, it just kind of popped up, Richard. Jeez. Somebody just fancifully put a hole <laughs> in with it. No, but like for the Navajo and in, in their, you know, in, in their writings, I mean, I, this is what I glean from them. They, they believe the stars are friendly beings, and that laws here on Earth should be followed by observing the stars. So the stars will dictate what you do here on Earth, like when you would hunt. When you would plant your crops and when you would harvest. So,
2: well, doesn't you know, that this sound is... like hyperdimensional astrology? Exactly, and it's indigenous training in
7: general. I, 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 believe. I just don't. I just don't believe this whole angle from the Navajo is some sort of um, quirky desire just to be friendly. I think it's much deeper. I mean, I was. I, I even stumbled across an episode of um, the Brady Bunch from, um, I guess it was the seventies. Yep, nineteen seventies and they go to the grand canyon the family and they i think they get lost or they bump into a boy who has basically run away he's a little navajo kid about 10 years old or something and they kind of run into him and they go what are you doing he says well i'm i'm running away from my grandfather and the grandfather is sort of steeped in navajo tradition and he says i'm tired of being an indian this is you know the, the script this is what the boy says right and the father said, I forget the father's name of the Brady Bunch, but he says, well, what do you mean? Like, what do you, where are you going to go? He goes, I want to become an astronaut. Now, folks, this is the 1970s. And, you know, so there's this discussion. It says, well, you can be, you know, like first, well, they, they might have said Indian at the time, but First Nations and an astronaut. And why do, you, why do you think that your grandfather wouldn't want that? And he says, well, I, you know, I, I don't know. So anyways, it all gets resolved the boy makes a decision to go back to his grandfather. And funny enough, the grandfather was um, the actor that played Tonto in the... um,
2: Oh, Jay Silverheels.
7: Yeah, I believe so. It's very interesting, all the the ties in. And of course, the grandfather says, hey, I I know Buffalo, but I know Blastoff. You know, and so it becomes, (laughs) you know... No, Richard, this is not just... I mean, the the fellow that was talking about this in the documentary, which when I ran across said, you know, this is, you know, the, the, the writers in Hollywood... Doing the you know the Gene Roddenberry thing and maybe maybe but I think it's I think it's much deeper I really do because I, I, I just, it's maybe it's just more of a gut feeling but I think we're seeing you know NASA requiring you know maybe Georgia would want to chirp in about this but like a heart you know a heart and a connection to Earth as as you know to add that to the you know the really you know scientific brainy side of things to become more of a balanced see
2: what unified... I don't, what I don't understand there's a lot I don't understand but about this <laughs> is the projected future of the moon in the commercial program in the Musk vision in the hopes and dreams of an awful lot of you know kids these days is to live and work on the moon to develop another civilization moon bases Moon cities, all the activities of human beings, ranging from artwork to sex shops, and drilling, and manufacturing, and pummeling the regolith for oxygen, and mining the ice for fuel, and uh, you know, breathable air. In other words, there is a huge industrial plan moving toward the moon, and they're not objecting to that. They're objecting to a memorial to our ancestors and the future in the form of these loved ones repose on a place where every time you go out and there's a moon, you can look up and say, I see you. I mean, the last thing, the last present that Robin gave me was a little plaque which said, love you to the moon and back. How can they object when such absolute horrors that they have fought so against on tribal lands, uranium mining and all kinds of other commercial activities that have nothing to do with sacred memorials and, you know, respect for the dead are going to go on in the widely public vision of NASA's future plans and Lockheed and Boeing and Musk and everybody and they're objecting to this sacred ritual there's got to be a huge iceberg underneath this gotta be
7: well if I could go on for a little more which I don't want to pick up no 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 you, the- you,
2: got, you have the floor go for it
5: you know well, Andrew, Andrew oh, before yeah. you before you do it you are er, much earlier asked a question about feathers
2: mm.
5: You know, it's really interesting. As I said, it's highly illegal to own raptor feathers unless you're a Native American. Uh, Native Americans have been allowed by the government to uh, hold raptor feathers. And it's so important that you were just mentioning the, the heart along with the head. You know, we've got this precipice that we're facing of expansion, and we've got two ways to do it. We can do international expansion, which is just carrying our same old crap out into a bigger arena, or we can change our consciousness and carry that into the outer arena, which means a greater inclusion of the bigger life in which we live. And there are, you know, those roosters and the owls that Richard was talking about earlier that just want a bigger expansion of what we've already have, rather than a big expansion
2: so guys,
5: change.
2: is it possible both of you that what the Navajo president of the council is really doing is trying to climb over the Carl Sagan thing, it's not whether you're right or wrong sir, you're not even in the conversation. Is is are the Navajo trying to open a public dialogue with NASA to where all these ethical and spiritual and sacred issues have to be dealt with before the gold rush of 19, you know, 2099 or whatever.
5: Well, consciousness expands spherically. So the higher you go, the deeper you need to go in order to maintain balance. And Holger and I were chatting earlier in the chat movie Forbidden Planet. It was the monsters of the id that were given uh, physicality that overcame everybody, meaning if we don't Clean up our subconscious and our lower stuff. It's dangerous to go higher.
2: So how would we know if, if think of this as kind of like a Western poker game? What what the Navajo have done is to basically called or raise actually raise the stakes. And what has to happen next is there needs to be a public dialogue, obviously participated in by NASA as representatives of the American taxpayer into how do we ethically and spiritually develop the moon without treading on ancient sacred precepts. Right.
7: Yeah, and I think we we already saw something about that with that. Was it a Spanish artist or architect who had designed a temple for the moon? Do you remember that? There was a story from a few years back, this beautiful dome with the stairs leading up on, I don't know exactly where they were thinking of putting it, but... You kind of get that impetus that's been coming, but I mean, I, I I don't think it was a and it was a multi, it was a unilateral like a, like a multi-use kind of temple concept it would be for every kind of uh, faith, right? That was the concept. So there seems to be a a bit of a push that way, but that that again, Richard was more of a Western concept. This is this is very different, and you know, I I want to tie a couple more things. And my number four, it's a pretty good little article. About It says, Navajo goes extraterrestrial. And this, if you tap on the link, up comes the article. And it talks about um, when Perseverance went up, NASA, or, or the, the, the president and the vice president of the Navajo Nation, or the council, worked with NASA to begin to name features on Mars with the Navajo language. See, what we seem to keep coming back to, and if we come out of that, go down um, oh, we go up to my number two now that's a little um, documentary about the Navajo code talkers Richard do you want to talk about that just very briefly because I, I want to tie this into a couple of things
2: well during World War two the problem was that we had cracked the Japanese code and we'd uh, cracked Enigma and we didn't want uh, them to crack our codes so the US government FDR the you know War Department turned to the Navajo. And they literally hired a whole bunch of Native American Navajos to create a code of Navajo speakers who could speak over open radio in a language that the Nazis and the Japanese had no chance of ever decoding. And they became known as the Navajo Code Talkers. And when uh, Paul Davids uh, uh, worked Together with the filmmakers to create the the film, the uh, the, the feature film with um, uh, Nicholas Cage, the Navajo Code Talkers, I think that was the title. We were invited, she and I, Wind to the,
6: Talkers,
3: oh, uh, Wind
2: Talkers, yeah. We were invited to the premiere at the Grumman's Chinese Theater, and believe me, you've never lived at that side of the tracks unless you have been on the red carpet at a Hollywood premiere was very interesting but the bottom line was it was real history fictionalized with a feature major a-list actor at the helm of, of Nicholas Cage and it indicates this incredible connection this deep connection between the Navajo Nation and modern American government
7: yeah and the idea of code wasn't a brand new idea because in World War One, other Native cultures were brought in to do this kind of thing: um, the Cherokee, the Choctaw, and the Lakota.
1: Mm-hmm. But
7: for some reason, we we focus on, on the, the Navajo, which to me tells me they're kind of the ambassadors. Hmm. And this brings me, Richard, to two more things. And I know we're we're, we're getting close to the break. We've got
2: plenty of time. One, <laughs> nine, nine.
7: <laughs> well, there was a uh, a, a, a Navajo couple. Um, If I can remember his name, I have it written down here. Okay, here it is. Manuelito and um, Jennifer, his wife, and and Wheeler. Wheeler is their last name, but they were Navajo. He was the artistic director of a museum, probably still is, in Phoenix, Arizona. And he had this idea, and he approached Lucasfilm with it, of dubbing in the Navajo language for Star Wars. What? And he yes he started in 1996 and he made his dream come true so in
2: so, so so young native american navajo would sit in a theater or sit at on television and they would see titling uh you know subtitles in navajo
7: no the words spoken
2: oh my gosh
7: yeah richard and they they did it uh, lucas film got on board and this was years ago this is a long time again, before all the sort of, you know, everybody's trying to look great with, with, you know, equality. This is this was done quietly. This was done in a normal kind of way. And it came to fruition. And of course the, the underlying story is his wife was a was a PhD in languages and she spoke a bunch of languages of course in Navajo and she taught Navajo uh, to, and, you know, and it's a, kind of a well-known fact that many, many indigenous cultures are losing their language. Yeah, well, the Nav- Navajo language is, is not a written language, and it is really very, very much based on metaphor. And so, like, there were no words in the Navajo language for, like, tank. So they would use code words, like, like whatever they used, like, you know, for maybe for a submarine, it might have been a seal. I don't know. I, I, I read came across it, but I can't remember all the terms. But, you know, metaphor is really interesting. Because not only are we seeing with this Star Wars concept that the Navajo people sort of framed within a – well, what we're basically we've been talking on the show about an ancient story. But what came to mind for me, Richard, was the movie Arrival from 2016 by mm-hmm. Denis Villeneuve, de where an alien um, series of spaceships in this oval shape come down to the planet, and these cephalopods, these seven-limbed sort of like octopus – floaty things you know highly advanced are flowing around and they can't communicate and then this this um, linguist is brought in and she begins to understand that their words are in almost like a well almost like a, a hieroglyphic almost asian almost chinese like um robert would have a lot to say about that and they were like meaningful words they were metaphors i mean they were meaningful images and i and it occurred to me as we were going in the show are the navajo being brought on board because their language or their understanding with their language will help to interpret something down the road.
2: Well, that's an interesting idea. See, I can't imagine the Navajo, given their connection and their being so plugged in at several different levels, they don't already know the moon was once occupied and there are millions of bodies up there, millions.
7: Well it opens up a lot of ideas right and and I I mean my idea is just a, a fanciful one but but who knows you know maybe we need interpreters do you ever <laughs>
3: think that maybe they gave them their language and they know who they are i heard stories about uh the navajo having a ranch and the saucer sat outside and the daughter saw
1: her father go
3: outside and speak to this being and he spoke to him like he, they were friends. And yeah, they've had a long contact with these guys.
2: This uh, this disembodied so. this, this voice is Keith Morgan.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm and kind of wondering. I, yeah. I decided to you may there. really I'm be onto
2: on something, quickly. Keith, because this could all be an extension, Andrew, of the cover-up.
3: Yeah. No, I think this is the disclosure coming. You guys, you don't get it when it comes to the ashes. There, it's not living bodies. So they don't really care, but somebody down the road, maybe only if they listen to this show, they will put this together and figure out how to save this thing. But if these guys ignore it, when there are real lives involved, they're not going to be ready, but somebody will be. And I'm hoping to see that happen because if they can save this mission, that means then they can save lives. And they need to think about that, because if they ignore it, they'll be in another Titanic situation. And that's my entry for this evening. Thank you. Okay. Well,
7: Keith, what, well, Keith, one of the premises from that movie Arrival was these beings made a symbol that, on one level, was thought to be by the powers of the Earth, weapon. But the linguists figured out that, no, it was tool. And, and it took her to be able to sort of you know, get this across to, to diffuse the whole situation. I, I know I'm going way off and a huge, as Joseph would say, twig, but there's something here, Richard, that's beyond just, as we say, just, uh, you know, we're just doing this because we're trying to be nice
2: to other people. Okay. You know, like, we are at the bottom you know, of the hour. Hang well, on guys. One half hour to go. And I have some more surprises. You're on the other side of midnight. Our conversation tonight is about the not so hidden enterprise mission of NASA And Astrobotic, and Lockheed Martin, and Boeing, and they've got to save this thing, otherwise it's not, I mean, this is a real test. At the last minute, will someone emerge and say, this is how we turn this Enterprise mission into an eternal journey of Gene, and Majel, and Arthur, and the others forever around the sun. To join all the other people in those ancient space habitats who have been orbiting the sun forever and ever and more. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. One last half hour to go. Don't go away. And welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go on the Saturday night, Sunday morning edition of our special Star Trek NASA Enterprise Mission Memorial. I've got a couple of surprises that I wanted to save for kind of like the last half hour. Because a very shocking, very surprising, very bizarre announcement was made on Tuesday. Remember, the secret Horus mission a la Peregrine a Enterprise was launched on Monday morning in the wee hours to 18 a.m. On Tuesday morning, NASA announced, and for this you need to go back to uh, the other side of midnight, go to my item number uh, eight. They announced suddenly they have delayed the second Artemis mission, from the fall uh, winter of this of this year to 2025 to September and they've delayed the Artemis 3 mission which is going to land uh, four astronauts on the moon's surface at the South Pole uh, by means of uh, a lunar variant of the Elon Musk Starship they plan to do that in 2025 everything has now been shifted So the landings on the moon for Artemis will not take place any earlier than 2026 and the Artemis 2 mission will slip to 2025. And when you read this piece, this article, frankly, it makes no sense because one of the things they say they're concerned about is the fact that on reentry during uh, Artemis 1, the Orion spacecraft slamming into the Earth's atmosphere uh, at basically in excess of escape velocity over 25,000 miles per hour, 35,000 feet per second, that it burned off and charred in such an unexpected degree that it proposes a problem for the heat shield and the technology to keep astronauts alive during the reentry of the Artemis II mission. So far, so good. But by the same token, we were told before Artemis I that even with the largest arc facilities and plasma generation technology on Earth, NASA cannot adequately simulate <clears throat> reentry into the Earth's atmosphere. In other words, the only Simulation was on Artemis 1 to loop the spacecraft, the Orion, around the moon like they did, bring it back to Earth at those hypersonic, hypervelocity speeds, and basically examine the heat shield after it had entered and splashed down, and they could take it into the lab and do the, in, in detail, forensic analysis. So here's a problem. If you can only validate the heat shield by doing a mission and you can only do a mission with an Orion spacecraft on an Artemis 2 launch on the SLS at lunar distance to give you that incredible velocity how can they trust without an intermediate mission the uh, the crew the four astronauts who've been selected for Artemis 2 Unless they have some mission, like during Apollo, they tested and tested and tested. But in this case, we're told, oh, we have to wait to find out what went wrong with the heat shield. But there's no way to test on Earth unless you put the crew of Artemis II in danger. Does this, anybody, make any sense? Or is it another Stupid absurd cover story like the fact that they couldn't for four months get into the Bennu capsule Because they couldn't find a screwdriver who wants to tackle this first
8: From my history with looking at mass images uh, when I was searching for the lost blue color by NASA and JPL I was already wondering what's happening? (laughs) Uh, it, it, it looks like, if to go back to Star Trek, uh, maybe uh, they don't want to violate uh, Prime Directive, not to tell, not to tell about uh, what is really happening there.
2: Wait, wait. You mean they're basically turning mm. the Prime Directive on its head, and in a prime, yeah, in, 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 in a Prime Directive mode, they don't want to tell us what's out there because it would violate our natural technological and social and
8: spiritual evolution? Yeah, the inverted one, yeah. To, to not tell the I public what is really ongoing there. Well, that, <laughs> well
2: I, I, I think we're just... Go, go ahead, go ahead.
8: No, go ahead.
6: Oh, Oh, every time I hear that about the Prime Directive, I'm, uh, I have to remind people that uh, if in your beloved Star Trek, I can't think of a single occasion when they didn't violate it. So it's which is exactly what would happen in real in real. Ron, life. it was we a could... damn
2: television show out of Hollywood. Of course they did, but you know what was that my grandmother used to say? A person's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? In the ideal, which
8: had to do with hell?
2: people. In the idea, in the ideal, you would set up an interface between alien cultures so that you did not intrude with a high technology. There was a brilliant. Star Trek Next Generation, which exemplified this really, really well. And in the end, the Picard and the crew decided that contact was not mandated because the culture would freak out, and they literally had ground truth from members of the planetary government that showed that they could not handle it, that they weren't ready, and so they went away without contacting the general culture. So Star Trek... Roddenberry was trying to limb out ideals, as opposed to what would happen in practice in a television show on every week to make money with commercials.
5: And in that particular Star Trek uh, 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 episode that you're uh, talking about, Richard, uh, at the end, they they didn't just go away. They were. They said, give us a few generations and then come back. Yeah. Let us prepare our people.
2: And they also took with them the xenobiologist who wanted this open contact. And her right. prize was to basically become part of the Federation as an individual scientist, not the planet, not the system as a whole.
5: Right. As far as this delay, to me, it seems like... an excuse to delay things until 2025 and some big decisions on higher levels get made.
2: Would you expand on that, dear?
5: (laughs) In In esoteric tradition, it's said that the spiritual hierarchy of this planet has a conclave once every hundred years, and the next one is 2025, and what's on the agenda is humanity's next steps
2: so if this is true, how come NASA didn't already know this and factor it into its calculations?
5: Got me on that one.
2: Well, remember, originally, the Artemis mission was supposed to land on the moon in 2028. And then we sent our ET briefing video to President Donald Trump through a backdoor channel. And suddenly he calls up his NASA administrator, a congressman from Oklahoma, whose name escapes me, uh, Jim, Jim. Oh, I can't remember the name. And suddenly NASA is going to land on the moon by 2024, which would have been, you know, the election year for Trump's second term. Uh, Yeah, no, no, no. It would have been toward the end of his second term if he'd been reelected. And I think frankly, we might've had a hand in that. So there was a political intervention in the original timetable. And now that intervention is gone and they've delayed it suddenly. And that goes back to what I think may have happened to Peregrine because the original landing site of the Horace mission on the 28th uh, 23rd of February was supposed to be up toward the North Pole of the moon in this place called Lacus Mortis, the Lake of Death, carrying, in addition to the 20 payloads, it's carrying the remains of all these people, right? So it's a memoriam mission with science tacked on because its intended landing site on the moon was supposed to commemorate the bodies on board in those little capsules, right? And then suddenly... NASA gets in the act and changes the location to a site much safer. Remember, if you go toward the poles, the glass in the domes is thicker and you could crash if you don't understand how to get down safely. So they re- redesignate the landing site in Pro Salarum at, I think, uh, 13 south and 25 west or something like that at the edge of Pro Salarum. And there, there are a set of ancient features on the moon called the Grucian domes, kind of like the, um, uh, there's another area on the moon uh, that I forget, uh, that have kind of, because most of the features on the moon are bowls or craters. These are gently rounded bumps on the maria, on the ancient lava seas that you can tell from the shadows. They're, they're, they're hills, they're not valleys. And it turns out from my departed friend, Steve Troy, who of course should have been on this mission uh, in his departed ash form, it turns out that around Kepler, the domes turn out to be ancient geometric architecture from the earliest era of the moon. You can see stunning geometry and cubes and rooms and orthogonal you know, rectilinear networks and all that. So did someone decide when the second landing site for, for Peregrine was picked? Oh no, you can't go there because it will reveal too soon what the moon is really waiting to show us. So they devised a sabotage that effectively worked on Monday morning by taking a little needle nose pliers, crimping a piece of tubing, So when it was pressurized, it would blow the the oxidizer, and they have a plausible excuse not to land on the moon and give away the secret. And then literally within hours, NASA announces this delay because you're right. There is a ritual sacred timetable that Trump interrupted, and this is their way of getting back on track with a much larger deeper vision which is connected to what we're going to talk with steve bassett about tomorrow night which is the secret classified briefing of the house committee by the intelligence uh, inspector general and the reaction of the representatives when they came out of the meeting it's one big very messy hole
5: is there anything about the timing in any of this that relates to February second
2: uh, you mean that holiday that that the next date in yeah no, yeah. not really. Remember they were going to land Peregrine on the twenty third Copperfield's going to make the moon go away on the twenty fourth Nothing's supposed to happen around the second. The next landing, I believe is the Japanese. Slim Mission, which is supposed to land on the 19th, it's supposed to. And what,
5: when is when is Chinese New Year? That's coming
2: up. I don't know offhand. Anybody?
6: Have to look it up.
2: I it's was going soon, to say, Mr.
6: Generalist. Yeah. Bob Chalk, no oh boy. I only know it in Vietnamese, and it's not the same <laughs> one as uh, China. February 10th. Thank you, Ian. Oh. Well, that's interesting. It's the,
5: it's the green dragon year, isn't it? Wood Something dragon. Like green dragon.
7: I think the color. wooden. Or was it green? I think Robert said it
6: might have been the wood dragon. I, that's what I thought he said. But he did say wood dragon, but I don't oh, know what okay. that means either.
2: Well, isn't wood green? Aren't, aren't leaves and trees green?
6: I don't think he's being metaphorical. Yeah, they love their dragons.
5: Yeah, the Chinese astrology is not only different critters; it's also different elements and different Yeah, that's
2: Okay, we got right, to about uh, less than 12 minutes here. What do we want to use the time for?
7: Well, Richard, if I could just add in about the Artemis mission
6: then the, then, Yeah, the you know by when, all I, means. when I see the quote, we never got to the yeah, we never got to the meteorites. Oh,
2: you mean the whole Bennu oh, thing? Andrew.
6: Hi. Yeah,
7: go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, Andrew. We have time. Well, really really quick. Um the quote uh it says here uh in order to safely carry out our upcoming Artemis missions. This comes from the article Richard that you have posted on the on the website. Uh to the moon with astronauts, we are now targeting September 2025 for Artemis 2. Etc. cetera, et cetera. NASA wrote Tuesday morning in a post on X, quote, safety is our top priority, unquote. That pops out right away. So I, I believe it is safety.
2: Yeah, I'm but just how do you focus. test a heat shield that you can only test in a mission to the moon?
7: I don't think it's a heat shield.
2: That's what they said in the article. Read it. It's They're really no, worried about the heat shield. No,
7: what I'm saying, just that I, yeah, I, I'm thinking this is another, like, my gut tells me, there is a safety issue,
3: but it's something completely different. Oh,
2: so that's just an excuse you're saying.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. didn't like, the
3: like, work on the uh, unmanned mission?
2: Yes, so, it did. But, so what's the
3: problem well, with them well, they, well, they, another unmanned
2: well, mission? They, well, they claim they had such problems that they didn't understand the model, you know. And when NASA doesn't understand something, when any scientist doesn't understand something, you need to figure it out, particularly if lives are at stake. Given the gravity, because literally, if you if you don't understand the heat shield and it vaporizes to where there's just bare metal at 25,000 miles an hour, the metal burns through and you incinerate them like the Columbia. So if this is a problem, but it's almost like the problem is so stupid that it's, a, it's another Emily Dickinson story. Yeah. It's like they, they're making up so dumb. So someone says, oh, come on. Like George just said, what's the real reason?
7: Well, and Georgia also used the word, I think you said conclave. Georgia? Yeah. yeah. And that means a gathering, a private meeting. If you talk about it in terms oh, of... Oh, how
2: terms. elegant. Okay, I'm going to yeah. bring okay. this up again tomorrow night, but I think there is a potential answer to the unanswerable mystery of what happened to our Secretary of Defense. Remember, he was supposed to go in over Christmas for elective prostate surgery. That's the story. Then he comes out, goes home, has complications, which are very painful, goes back in and doesn't tell anybody, including the White House, his staff in the Pentagon, his chief of staff, the, 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 the uh, you know joint chiefs, nobody for days. Now, what's wrong with this picture? First of all, he had his surgery at Bethesda Naval Hospital. Bethesda Naval Hospital is the same hospital where supposedly the first secretary of defense leaped from the 16th floor to his death in a suicide after being exposed to the 1947 crash at Roswell and all the stuff around that. Refer to Robert Morningstar for details. Then door file. It's, no. it's where John Kennedy's body was brought after Dallas where according to Morning Star the bodies were switched and all kinds of chicanery went on around the autopsies and all that. So Bethesda has a deep root in the extraterrestrial UFO cover up mystery. Question. Austin just came back from meeting face to face with Netanyahu about the war with other Middle East leaders, I think in Jordan and in Egypt and whatever. If there is real movement on the UAP front, if there are real beings out there that are talking secretly to this government prior to some kind of major revelation, and you can't send the president because he'd be too visibly missing if he's missing. What if the reason that none of the story around Austin makes sense is because prior to an announcement that there are real guys here from somewhere else and they want to help, Austin became the designated ambassador. You could never yet, it's not part of the Georgia timeline, so you need to cook up a cover story that's so stupid, so ass-backward, so crazy, so uncharacteristic of people at that level that the press and the American people will buy it because everybody in their life louses up something at least once and this is austin's turn
5: my whole sense of that when i first heard about it was it sounds very much like eisenhower's golf
6: trip
2: which is a perfect segue
6: appointment yes which is
2: which is a perfect segue to the fact that george washington dwight david eisenhower john f kennedy and Ronald Reagan are on the Enterprise mission into the solar system tonight. And the first guy represents the beginning of this country. The second guy represents our battle against fascism and Nazis, which is kind of echoing all around us now. The third guy, John Kennedy, initiated the entree into space, the new frontier, the new ocean, the opening of the real solar system, and he died because he wanted to make it public in the 19, and they killed him for it. And finally, Ronald Reagan, dear Ronnie, why is he there? Because his vision was of this nation, a shining city on a hill, and maybe the hill turns out to be on a Bonstell lunar landscape. Okay. That's very poetic, Richard. Thank Beautiful. you. Very nice. Thank <laughs> you.
6: Yes.
2: Okay, we've got four minutes. Who wants to make, make noise? Who wants to make trouble?
5: Uh, I'd okay. like to yeah. make a comment about uh, Andrew's Navajo thing. You know, esoterically, indigenous people uh, are supposed to connect humanity to their antediluvian
2: past that they didn't have the break in
5: consciousness that the rest of us did.
2: Okay, Mm -hmm. and that leads us where?
5: Well, that they have to be a player in all of this that's
6: unfolding.
2: So again, we're dealing with multi-level
6: agendas. Yeah. I think they'd like to be. They make most of their money off of casinos, and I'm not disparaging the Navajo. I mean, because my grandfather worked for the Wind Talkers. Don't you find that a
2: bit karmic? I do. Every time Robin and I would drive by a Pueblo here in New Mexico, we'd start to giggle because we saw all these white folks losing their money to the brown and the red folks. And it was such closure, such closure.
6: Oh, I'm all in favor of that. Don't get me wrong there either. Yeah.
2: But as Andrew has pointed out, I think the roots of this are so much deeper. And again, good science. You have to test your model. If this conversation about contaminating the moon continues, persists, does not go away, we'll know that that was the real agenda of the current Navajo political position. In other words, before the gold rush, and I'm using that term very advisedly, Andrew and I are planning something pretty cool. Before the coming gold rush, this is a conversation that must be had And the only question is, how do you bring it up and who brings it up and who better than the native tradition, the native peoples who, of course, live here in the ancient Southwest where 30,000 years ago there may have been a stunningly high-tech civilization now buried underground.
1: Yeah.
7: And while we, everything festers here on Earth, as we rose, rise to another. Another Tower of Babel moment, you know, a pinnacle of of, of, um, technology, there is this intrusion of discord and and confusion just injected into the system with all this chaos and war, and through the middle of it is this exquisite ancient non-written language which is considered sacred. And in fact, amongst the elders of the Navajo, they say you have to be careful how you use the sacred language. Because it has meaning every time they speak, but it's that language that can resonate, Richard, that can ring through the solar system and maybe you
6: know unite us in all our languages,
7: you know, and in all our hearts. So that's my bit.
6: Surprise, Andrew, that you liked Arrival. I I didn't like that movie very much. Well, I thought, well I, thought I, it, just... I thought it was
2: sufficiently alien to be not cliche, but in fact close True. to what real alien contact probably, unless it's family, if it's really aliens, it's much more like that than any other film, I think, that's been out there.
6: Yeah, Especially since that,
5: they've, they've actually found that some of the DNA in the cephalopods isn't from here.
6: Yes, cephalopods. Uh, uh, that's fussy me. Seven-legged. That's what was kind of silly. But the, uh, who's, the, who's the actor that came in as her uh, cohort? And Saviour guy, he played Hawkeye in the yeah. uh, Hey guys, movies.
2: We're out of time. I want to thank everyone on this Star Trek mission memorial. More to come. And remember, guys out there tonight, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.